everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. We're going to be talking about your DC books for the week of June 29th, 2021. Pretty light week this week, and I will point out it's the fifth Wednesday. So, you know, once once in a while on uh, every fourth month, we do have a fifth Wednesday. And traditionally, it's kind of a dumping ground that last Wednesday for you know, annuals and specials and all that sort of thing. And this week is no uh, exception, but I, I will say when, when I look at the books for next week and there's like 15, 16 books, it's, it's insane. <laughs> it's insane. And you guys not, couldn't you not have taken some of those, but like, let's say you take these four, that's 20, do 10 this week and 10 next week. Yeah. yeah. I mean, next week I, 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 I looked at it and I'm like, well, that's that's two episodes. I don't know how we can do 16 books in one yeah. episode. Yeah, th- these these books are pretty thick. These annuals are they have a lot more pages. I, it took much longer for me to re- read them than, than I originally thought. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I agree. They they should sort sort of space them out. Annuals week is always kind of a mixed bag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the Green Arrow is 100 pages. You know, oh. it's the 80th anniversary, so that that took a while. Um, but yeah, I thought overall it was kind of I don't know. Maybe it's cuz I'm not the biggest Green Arrow fan. Um there's been times I've loved Green Arrow and times where I've been pretty indifferent. It just completely yeah. depends on what the story is. I feel like it's he's a he's a a character that for me it's very creator dependent on how how much I'm into him. Uh but I I will say that the uh, the anniversary special here, the 80th anniversary special, it did capture a lot of those eras of Green Arrow pretty well. So it did. Was, yes, it did. Yes. Yeah. That was nice. Uh, Catwoman was a big highlight for me. Teen Titans was sort of weird. Um, and I thought the Infinite Frontier Secret Files, you know, just collected all the digital stories. But I, I feel like it's it, – I wouldn't say required reading for Infinite Frontier if you're checking out the miniseries, but it definitely – there's good information there. If you are reading the infinite frontier, you want to see what, what the hell Joshua Williamson is doing. This will inform that. So yeah, it's probably worth reading. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, uh, I'd agree with that. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's start off with the Catwoman, which I never put two and two together and realized that this father Valley was related to John Paul Valley and Ludovic Valley, uh, otherwise known as Azrael from the bat family. I, I just, I, it wasn't obvious to me at all. Yeah. That that yeah. It, it seems obvious in hindsight, given the origin now, but I agree with you. I, I never, I never actually saw it coming. It actually surprised me. Yeah. So I, I thought, but it, it's not like I can't, I, I don't, I don't know. It, it's not that <laughs> I dislike father Valley as a character. This didn't necessarily make me like him more. Um, but more than anything, what this did was it made me want to go back and read more Asriel stories. That's right. Let me go back and read the Asriel series. Let me go back and, uh, yeah, that's what it did more than, more than anything. But anyway, we'll we'll talk about it in a little more detail here in a minute. Um, but it's from the the same writer that, that writes the regular series. So Rom V is the writer. Uh, there's, it's all sort of one big story, but it's divided up into three sections. And so uh, Kyle Hotz, Fernando Blanco, and Juan Ferreira 
as artists, each handle one section of the book. Then David Barron does the colors, uh, Tom Napolitano on the, the uh, letters. There's a couple of really cool covers. The main one is by Hots and Barron, and then Liam Sharp has a, a variant that's uh, that's pretty cool looking too. So, uh, yeah, I, I think you texted me after you read it, Rocky, and, and said you really enjoyed it. So give us your thoughts. Well, uh, yeah, I, I actually, you know, I'll be honest. I The last time, I can't remember the last time I was actually interested in Azrael. The last time I even, now Azrael's not actually in this, but it's the Order of St. Dumas is actually part of this. And it's the Order of St. Dumas where th- that's the origin of this Father Valley. So this this new person, this Father Valley is a person that uh, he's a spectacled, mysterious, very, uh, very energetic and very skilled in hand-to-hand combat. We last saw him in the last issue of Catwoman. He actually stabbed uh, one of Catwoman's str- uh, lead stray generals in the stomach, leaving him for dead. Uh, his name was Leo. And he, uh, Father Valley left him to die in a back alley, basically to get Selena's attention. And the background here for uh, Father Valley is... I think it's actually kind of interesting. On the surface, it's kind of tropey, maybe. Uh, but I, I think that the, you know, the, the devil, or I guess the interest is, is in the details, what I found. Uh, first, the, the art here by, uh, Fernando Blanco is, is just gorgeous. I mean, the, the, the mythology of, of, of the father, of the, of the Church of St. Dumas and, and the, and the, just, just the whole, all, all that imagery, that religious imagery that, that we associated with Israel, with Azrael. Well, Azrael, there's an entire order of Saint Dumas, there's an entire order of priests where, that are, are quite sort of corrupt in their own right. And this Father Valley guy, this guy's name is actually, uh, Carl Weisemann, and he was mentored by this, uh, Ludovic Valley. And Ludovic Valley, uh, and maybe maybe you can refresh my memory, but I I don't remember the origin of of, of John Paul Valley. I'm not sure if Ludovic Valley is was he the mentor to John Paul Valley as well. Do you know that he's he's the father. He's John he's Paul father? Valley's father. <laughs> oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. So in so in this annual, when <clears throat> when he's when Ludovic is talking to to Wiseman, and he mentions sending his son away, mm-hmm. so that his son wouldn't be caught up in the order of Saint Dumas. He's talking about sending John Paul away. Uh, oh, okay. But unbeknownst to Ludovic, there's some kind of connection, supernatural connection with the power of Azrael that when Ludovic dies, the power is passed on to John Paul and John Paul becomes Azrael without any of the training. And that's kind of the disconnect and why John Paul wasn't indoctrinated into the order of St. Dumas because uh, Ludovic had made that deal with the, kind of the the leaders of of the order of saint dumas hey i'll be your Azrael, but you gotta you leave my son out of it um and i don't i i I don't know i don't remember if if the leaders betrayed ludovic in that okay we're gonna tell you that we're leaving your son out of it and didn't let ludovic know that the powers of Azrael, the avenging angel will automatically pass to his son whether he's raised in the order or not um Again, this is what, when I was reading the annual, what made me want to go back and, because um, man, do you? Remember, I mean, when Azrael came out in the '90s, he was the like the best thing since sliced bread. Everybody loved him. He was it was it was the '90s, and he had an armor, uh, you know, well, armored costume, and he was violent and over the top, and obviously yeah. be, became ba- so so uh, popular. He became Batman when Batman yeah. back was broken, and then. Uh, and I think honestly, that actually, that storyline, 
the Knight's End storyline and, and Knight's Quest storyline where Azrael became Batman and, and kind of went over the top and took it too far, more, a much more violent version of Batman. I think that yeah. actually hurt John Paul Valley's popularity as a character. If that doesn't happen, I think he mm-hmm. probably would be an A-list character by now. Well, it's it's too bad because uh, hearing you say that, it, it, uh, thank you for that because it uh, I appreciate that it very much refreshes my memory and uh, I always I always sort of I always self deprecate in myself and acknowledge that I I don't remember but then I I gotta forgive myself that's a storyline from years ago I yeah, frankly I, I think dare I say maybe it's a little bit of a constructive criticism of writer Ram V that maybe a little bit more of those clues should have been in this story, but but maybe they were there and I, and I just never saw them. But I, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more seeds. That, like, uh, I think they even maybe mentioned, he mentioned John Paul, but I would have liked to have seen a little bit more callback to, to uh, Azrael specifically uh, because it, clearly I was thinking Azrael and I was reading the story. And but, but it's not necessary. It's not necessary. I really liked... Um, knowing the knowing what you just described about the the history of Jean Paul uh, Jean Paul Valley uh, and and his father uh, Ludovic, uh, this is very clearly it makes knowing that makes this story even more interesting because uh, uh, Ludovic's relationship with Carl Carl is almost like his maybe like his first apprentice his first apprentice that he had even before his son maybe and and uh, Ludovic of course out of loyalty to the order of Saint Dumas he's ordered to wipe out the order of Saint Dumas because they discover that there's a spy in their midst and 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 Ludovic is told uh, by the head of the order that you know wipe them out wipe them all out including Carl and he doesn't want to do that because he almost thinks of Carl like a son I got sort of like a very much a sort of like a, a father-son vibe here even though they're just mentor and mentee and I thought it was, and the the sense of betrayal that Carl feels uh, when when Ludovic betrays him and uh, essentially sort of casts him out and essentially, you know, believes he he, he tries to kill him. It, it you really, I, I got a strong sense of that, and you really got a sense. I got a good strong sense, and credit to the writer Ram V here and the amazing art uh, by uh, Fernando Blanco. I really got that strong sense that this. I felt the emotion here. I felt the sense of betrayal that Carl felt and Carl's uh, quest for uh, revenge that ultimately brings him back to seek revenge on Ludovic. And uh, ultimately, uh, it really whets my appetite because now I'm wondering, why does he care about Selena so much? So this is a very interesting story. It's gorgeously rendered. This is one of the, it, this is actually an annual that's significant. A lot of times you can forget annuals. They're not must reads. They're kind of like afterthoughts. You don't always have to read annuals. They're just sort of like one-off stories. But this is actually an annual that I think truly enhances the narrative. And it's it's nice and long and you get, this is character based. I really got into this story. I quite enjoyed it. And, um, so, and that's despite the fact that here, here I am criticizing it, wishing that it gave us even more information about John Powell, but I don't need to know. He, he, I don't need to read about John Powell, uh, John Powell Valley, uh, because I'm actually quite interested in Carl. I'm really curious as to know why Carl became so corrupted that he wanted to, uh, that he wants to take his revenge on Selena. I don't quite understand that. I think that's still kind of a mystery to me. I never really got a sense of, of why that is. Did did you get a sense of why Carl uh, ultimately w- would want to get revenge on Catwoman of all people? Uh, well, n- no more so than he would want necessarily to get revenge on anybody. You know, he he. I mean, here's a guy who Order of Saint Dumas. Uh, 
you know, worshiped Ludovic, definitely saw him as a father figure. And once, you know, he's betrayed by Ludovic, he, he likens that in his mind, or uh, there's an equivalency there for, um, for him, for Carl Wiseman, that Ludovic to him is, is his father figure, but also his, uh, he equates that with God, you know, God, the father uh, as mm-hmm. well. So, you know, when he, he feels that he's, he's been betrayed by Ludovic, his faith has been betrayed. His faith in his relationship with Ludovic as a father figure, his faith in the order of St. Dumas, his, his faith in terms of his religious faith. Uh, he feels betrayed by all of it, you know, and he, he mentions that, uh, you know, he's, he had been orphaned at birth and, and now he's orphaned by Ludovic turning his back on him. He's orphaned by the fact that he no longer is a member of the order of St. Dumas. So the order has been uh, destroyed. And so he's, he's going to turn his back on, on all of it. Right. And he's, he's kind of self martyring, you know, and, and what he's going to spend the rest of his life doing is basically being a hired killer because he's going to force, he's going to be so terrible. He's going to be such a terror. He's going to be such a force of evil in the world that it's going to cause the, the people that he's after the people that he's hired to kill to turn to God, you know? And so it's, <laughs> I, I think it's a fascinating idea. Um, and he says as much, and I'm reading between the lines a little bit, um, but he basically, he says, that's kind of what I'm, I'm, my purpose is in life now, right? Like I, I'm going to attack people. They're going to fear and, and they'll, they'll pray to God. Um, so, I mean, it's an interesting dichotomy, interesting in terms of, you know, kind of a psychological impact. Um, it, it makes him a, a little bit more of an interesting character, uh, but it it is such an out of the box way of giving a character kind of a reason for you know a motivation, a reason for doing what they're doing. Um, are you so intrigued by the character, or are you are you fascinated by him, or are you uh, just kind of? I, I wouldn't go so I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm fascinated by him. Before I just thought kind of two-dimensional. He hasn't done much, not necessarily somebody that I'm interested in. So I, I will say this origin makes me more interested in him. But I, I guess for me, the, the reason that I'm having a tough time with this character, I was having a tough time before because I had no context. Um, and now, you know, with, with what he says in, in the book, uh, and let me, let me, I'll just read what he, he says. He, so he talks about, uh, you know, laying there. So Ludovic was going to kill him. He showed up at the the, the Order of St. Dumas safe house or castle or fortress or whatever you want to call it, where Carl happened to be. There were several of them all around the world. Ludovic showed up at the one where Carl was. Uh, Carl un- unmasked him. He realized who he was. Carl supposedly tried to commit suicide, jumped off the side mm-hmm. from very high up, jumped off the side of the parapet from the fortress and fell, didn't die, uh, laid there for days. And he said, all my fathers had forsaken me. I'd been orphaned at birth. Then by you, Ludovic, and uh, and now at last by you. And he's talking about God, right? Like he, he laid there, what he thought was dying, prayed to God. God didn't answer him. He said, I understood then your great plan. I understood why I had to fall. I am the shadow that stalks this valley, the evil that is to be feared. I'm forsaken, so may so I may serve to redeem others. I will become the reason they shall call to you in prayer 
father and he's talking about you know god the father so yeah he he sees his plan as as uh, or his purpose in life being that everybody has betrayed him he's all alone i'll just be a bad guy and i'll force people to turn to god in prayer so again it, it's an interesting motivation it gives me a little bit more context and makes him a little more interesting whereas previously to this annual i didn't have any relatability to this character and so i, yeah. I kind of didn't I didn't care. Um, I think he's going to have his time. He's going. He's going to have his work cut out for them with, with Selena because Selena. Selena's an atheist. I, she doesn't strike me as someone who uh, prays every night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely not. And and you know, this is this is again, it's pulling in the the lore of Azrael and um, you know, Order of Saint Dumas and Catholicism and things like that, which I definitely have uh, relatability to since I was uh, you know raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school for many years as a as a kid. Um, and so, yeah, it, it makes it a little more relatable, and I, I do find that aspect of the story interesting. But I still, I, he's still not a character that I'm that I would say I like as a as a villain. Um, but maybe maybe he'll get there. I, I don't know. I, I still feel like there's for me there's something missing. Um, but I was a big fan of Azrael back in the day, and like I said, reading this annual made me want to go back and and read more about. Uh, and just reread all the Azrael stuff because um, I feel like he's a character that is definitely underused these days. But, you know, all that being said, as much as I did enjoy this annual, I think the biggest thing I enjoyed about it was the art. Um, mm. Kyle Hotz, his art is is fantastic. And I, I particularly feel like his art is suited for horror. Now, this isn't necessarily horror. There's a lot of action, but he's put so much detail in his art that it definitely works here. Um, but then the second chunk of the story that's by Fernando Blanco and Fernando Blanco's art throughout the Ram V cat woman run has been fantastic. You know, very cinematic. I, I always use the um, reference Michael Mann films when I'm talking about the visuals that B Blanco brings, because that's just what it reminds me of. But what's amazing in this one is when we get those first couple of pages of Fernando Blanco art, it's as uh, Azrael. This is the the Ludovic John Paul Valley's father, the Ludovic Valley version, and he's attacking one of these strongholds in Spain, um, and that's where uh, Carl Wiseman jumped over the the side of the parapet. But the first couple pages, this Ludovic version of Azrael is standing there with his flaming sword drawn, that famous flaming sword, and the color work by David Barron is so absolutely amazing some of the best color work i've ever seen david do maybe with the exception of the eternity miniseries over at valiant the flames on this sword pretty much take over the panels in terms of how it lights everything in the panels the, the flaming sword is the light source and it informs everything else and it is amazing it is just gorgeous artwork and then you go from that um to uh the the uh the juan ferreira art that finishes off the the annual and yeah, it's, this is a gorgeous looking annual. Um, I, I, you know, a lot of times I'll say, well, I wish they'd gotten just one artist to do the whole thing, but you know, they divide it up well. And even though these artists don't necessarily have a similar style, it, it definitely works. And, uh, and like Rocky said, a lot of times annuals aren't required reading, but this is a quality annual. And if you're reading Catwoman and enjoying Catwoman, you definitely, need to be reading this uh, this annual because otherwise you may be a, a little lost. And uh, I'm definitely going to have to try to find room. <laughs> my, uh, I should say time. There's plenty of room on my iPad to put more comics on there. Um, 
but I, yeah, I mean, I've got four or five different long classic series that I want to read. I just put a bunch of spawn on there and now I'm like, man, I need to go back and do a deep dive Asriel uh, reading order and, and go back just because it's been a long time since I've, uh, I've read all that stuff. 30 years, like you were saying, you know, 25 years since Asriel yeah. first appeared. It's been a long I think time. Sword of Asriel was, I want to say 1990. Yeah. Was well, you know, sort of the, the last time I read Ezreal, he was on the member of the Justice League uh, Odyssey. Uh, oh yeah. He was yeah. in in the uh, in in space with with Darkseid and and Jessica Cruz and Cyborg and Starfire. So uh, it, that had nothing to do with the Order of Saint Dumas. And so one really never got a sense of any any of this. So, <laughs> but anyways. Yeah. Uh, Nineteen ninety three. Wow. So twenty. Eight years. I forgive myself for not remembering that. <laughs> since since uh, Batman Sword of Azrael de- debuted. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. That's... Uh, all right. Well, let's move on to uh, the next book. Uh, and again, this is an- another – we were mentioning these These are pretty large books. Uh, the Infinite Frontier Secret Files. So this is an 80-page giant. And uh, like I, me- I think I mentioned it at the top uh, – these are stories that were published as digital firsts and it's basically director bones of the DEO going through and uh, listening to like files or, or tapes on different characters that are going to play a role in the infinite frontier series that Williamson's doing. And they're each done by different uh, writers and different artists, but with Williams as sort of uh, Williamson as sort of a, uh, like a showrunner, right? So for example, the first one's called Make Time and it says story by Brandon Thomas and Joshua Williamson, but the writers is Brandon Thomas. So basically Joshua Williamson is consulting with each of the writers for each of these stories to come up with the framework of the story. And then the writer comes in and, you know, does the story beats and the scripting and what have you. The art in this first one is by Valentine Delandro. Colors are by Marissa Louise and Triona Farrell. Letters by Tom Napolitano. And, and the first story is a Calvin Ellis story, uh, who's the Superman of, of Earth-23. And it's a it's a fun story. Um, you know, Valentine Delandro, we, I think the last time we mentioned their work was on the Mr. Miracle backups in the, the action comics for Future State, or uh, not action comics, but uh, Superman of Metropolis for Future State. And... We were pretty harsh. Uh, the art wasn't particularly good. This art's better, uh, but it's still a little dark for my taste. A lot of blacks, really thick lines. And Calvin Ellis is maybe the most hopeful of the different versions of Superman from the multiverse. And so I feel like this art with really thick lines and, and kind of blocky transitions from panel to panel doesn't necessarily convey that really, really well. Overall, the story does a pretty good job. It's basically a day in the life of Calvin Ellis as he takes on different challenges um, as as Superman while trying to inspire those around him as president, Calvin Ellis, to solve their own problems because he's constantly worried in the back of his mind, what happens if in his uh, role as the leader of justice incarnate, if he ever doesn't return from a mission, he wants to be sure that his Earth, Earth-23 is uh, not too over-reliant on his abilities as Superman constantly saving the day and saving the earth from disaster that they'll, they won't, he doesn't want them to become too reliant on him as Superman. He wants them to be able to solve their own problems. So 
ultimately, I thought it was a, a good story. Uh, I enjoyed it. But yeah, I think the art, not, not the best artist uh, choice on, on that one. I mean, and not to say that Valentin Delander did a terrible job. Um, I just think he probably would have been better suited to do like the director bones um, and, uh, and Captain Boomerang story or something like that. So, something that wasn't Superman inspired, because like I said, it, he's such a, a hopeful character. You really need kind of a lighter, more traditional comic art um, sort of style, but that, maybe that's just me. Uh, what did you think of the first story, Rocky? I, I thought it was, uh, I actually thought that uh, this was just very much, I, I think DC is just trying to introduce uh, Brandon Thomas, Joshua Williamson. They, they're trying to, I think, re, reintroduce Calvin Ellis into the DC universe because, you know, th- there's a there's a focus on Calvin Ellis in this Infinite Frontier Secret Files. He Earth-23, along with Earth-Designate Zero, crops up more than once in the Secret Files, and, and, and it cropped up as well in the uh, in Infinite uh, Frontier number one that we had reviewed. And uh, I think that uh, DC wants to give some more love to this President Superman because he is the leader of Justice Incarnate, uh, who safeguards the sanctity of uh, multiversity of the 52 Earths in conjunction with uh, all the various Justice League totalities, because each individual Earth has its own Justice League totality, which is ultimately revealed in the fifth story in this compilation called The Totality, also written by Brandon Thomas and Joshua Williamson. Very clearly, this, uh, you'd alluded it, uh, you alluded to it earlier, uh, Jason, you're absolutely right. This is even, is this essential reading for DC? You, you could probably get away with not reading this, but I would recommend people get it up, uh, pick it up, because I, I do think, uh, you know, frankly, it's kind of a criticism of DC right now in that, you know, are, are we headed to our future state? Uh, future state, the future of future state probably isn't happening. Maybe it is. But is Infinite Frontier happening? They don't really seem that a lot of this stuff doesn't really appear to be lining up all that well, but yet... Tr- in a way, maybe it is. I don't know. No one's talking about Infinite Frontier, really. No one's really talking about it. And it's a little bit, you know, there's some very significant stuff that happens in not not so much this story with President Superman, with Calvin Alice of Earth-23. But as we, as we go through this, there's going to be some revelations here that might have some significant impact on this new Omniverse. What is this new Omniverse? Where are we headed? It seems like, is this really a... a a, a crisis, an epic event. I'm not really sure. One of the things that I think that comes through with uh, Calvin Ellis is that he very much wants Earth 23 to look after itself, but all the citizens of Earth 23, and I think all the citizens of Earth 02, everybody now knows that the multiverse, that, that the crisis happened. They're aware of the circumstances of death metal. And Joshua Williamson, along with Brandon Thomas, I mean, the story here is that Everybody, all the citizens of the multiverse seem to be self-aware that there was this crisis. And I'm not really sure where all this is going, but um, I like I like Calvin Ellis I, I, because I think people need to need, need to get to know him because he's a major player. I think he's a major player with Justice League Incarnate. I think he's going to be a major player with the DC uh, Infinite Frontier moving forward. So, yeah, I would agree with that. Um and speaking of major players, and maybe it's because he's become so popular. You know, people equate him with Wally West a lot these days, and I'm talking about uh, Roy, Roy Harper, Speedy, yeah. Arsenal, whatever you want to call him. And maybe it's just because we have uh, the Green Arrow 80th anniversary where he 
had a couple stories there, and now we see him here for the second story, Seeing Red, written by Stephanie Phillips, uh, story by Stephanie Phillips and Joshua Williamson, art is by Anaka Miranda, colors by Nick Filardi, and letters by Tom Napolitano. Um, and we see Roy, and he's back. And, you know, between this, between the, the Green Arrow 80th anniversary, between the uh, Teen Titans yearbook and the Teen Titans Academy, where his, you know, it's called the Roy Harper Teen Titans Academy, Clearly, they're bringing him back, but it's like they don't know they they don't know what to do with him. I mean, much like Wally, and you know, we we have differing opinions when it comes to Tom King a lot of times. Um, but I, I just wish that Tom had picked somebody other than Wally West and somebody other than Roy Harper in um, in Heroes in Crisis okay. because it, it's like he did that, and he it was an impactful story, and he was trying to to tell the story and and. Uh, there were certain themes and whatnot that he wanted to explore and he chose those heroes and it made it a little more impactful. But at the same time, DC's been trying to walk it back ever since it happened. Like, I don't understand. Like, why did you give him editorial approval to kill Roy Harper and to have Wally West be responsible for all the deaths when the, then you were going to spend how many, I mean, we've talked about it on this podcast, on this YouTube channel about how many times is it the story of Wally West's redemption? How many times does he need to be redeemed? Yeah. Right. I mean, just it's over, it's continuous. It needs to just stop. And now it feels like the same thing with Roy Harper. Yeah. So it's almost like in these instances, specifically with Wally West and with Roy Harper, there needs to be like a clear delineation, like, and I don't know how, I don't know how you do it. Do you just say, okay, this is the Roy Harper from the past that has come forward and skipped over all the traumatic stuff with losing his daughter and what, like, I don't know. It, there definitely needs to be a reset button for Roy Harper because he's been put through the ringer because all these different writers over the years have wanted to make him edgy and dig into that angst and it's great storytelling. But then you can never, like the things that have been done to Roy Harper, they're things that are hard to undo and get him back to like any sort of status quo. You know, I hate to say he's damaged goods and he can never be, uh, interesting again, or you can tell stories with him in the right way or whatever. It's just so many different writers have tried so many different things. And I, I almost think they've screwed him up so much that you need sort of a clean slate to start over. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to throw everything out, the drug use in the past and, you know, whatnot, but man, the poor guy's been really has been put through the ringer. And um, this story by Stephanie Phillips really shows that she understands that as well. Uh, I mean, Roy Harper here is basically trying to commit suicide by having – he picks a fight in a bar with a guy that's like four times his size and is just letting the guy beat on him um, before uh, somebody who has no business, just a complete stranger, who's even smaller in stature than Roy Harper, stands up for, for Roy. And that's when Roy realizes that, hey, maybe I need to – turn things around. Maybe I need to not give up. Yeah. And of course, once he actually start, even though this guy's like four times the size, once Roy actually starts defending himself, the fight is over quite quickly. So uh, it does seem like this, this girl and Roy even acknowledges it. Uh, Cause the girl says, Hey, thanks for saving me. And, and Roy says, actually, I think you saved me. Um, and maybe he, in Roy's mind, he's looking at this young, uh, this young woman that saved him and seen as what his daughter would look like if she hadn't been killed. Yeah, she kind of looks like Cheshire a little bit too, and and his daughter yeah. Leon as well, obviously. So I'm not sure. It's probably it reminds him a little bit of both. 
Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. Because she's, uh, you know, she's of Asian descent and, you know, she's small in stature, like I said. So um, I don't know, maybe it's a, a step yeah, on that, that road. But I, I, I just, again, I don't know how to do it. I don't have the answers. I'm not saying I have this perfect idea to pitch to, to kind of, and, and I don't even want to use the word redeem, but just bring Roy Harper back to like a baseline. Um, and again, you know, it doesn't mean you have to throw anything out. I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but I do kind of wish or hope that DC can get him to that place. Whoever, what, whatever writer it is. Um, Cause I feel like he needs that. He's been jerked around so much over the past few years. You know, I, I just, I feel the same way with, with Wally West, but. Uh, anyway, what, what did you think, think of the Roy Harper story? Well, uh, I think that the timing of this Secret Files, this should have came out before Infinite Frontier number one. It should have come out before then because this is a story. This Roy Harper story clearly takes place before it was revealed that he was a Black Lantern. One of the questions I have, and this is a minor nitpick here, but, you know, he's getting the the, the crap kicked out of him here. And he doesn't suddenly manifest a Black Lantern ring to beat the guy up. But yet when he's getting the crap beat, beat out of him in Infinite Frontier number one, he suddenly manifests a Black Lantern ring and he's got all these Black Lantern, uh, you know, projections around him, uh, incarnations of himself. And so now I suppose one could one could speculate that he never really felt that his life was in danger when he was fighting this big guy. He was letting himself get beat up. So he, I don't think Roy Harper necessarily felt his life was in danger fighting this guy. Like you said, like you alluded to, he was likely just wanting, wanting to get beat up because he has a low self-esteem and he's just feeling really low on himself. But um, I think the timing of this, you know, again, editorially, I think this should have come out before infinite frontier uh, n- number one, uh, because I think it's, I think people might be confused, you know, because people, if they're reading Secret Files after they, he's just revealed as a Black Lantern, and now he's, they're going to read this and see he's getting beat up by <laughs> by some random dude and helped out by a, a, a woman that looks like his uh, his uh, former lover Cheshire and reminds him of his daughter Leon. Who, uh, just to remind to remind listeners, his daughter Leon is actually a, is one of uh, Selena Kyle's stray cats, and she's uh, what's her name? Jace? Is it Cat Girl? What is it? I thought it was shoes. Shoes. That's what it is. Thank you. (laughs) Good memory, but it's short. But, but anyways, I actually, I think, I, I think if this had come out in the right order, I think this is interesting enough that Roy Harper is an interesting character and him becoming a black lantern out of all this. I think that's interesting and it's intriguing. Where is it going to go? I'm not sure, but you know, the, the fact that this girl reminds him of Leon, uh, the fact that the mystery surrounding his daughter, Leon, he doesn't even know that she's still alive. I'm really excited for that inevitable storyline when he finds out his daughter's still alive. Roy Harper at some point is going to be rewarded with the knowledge that his daughter is still alive. And I'm looking forward to that because I want Roy Harper. He deserves some happiness. And we know that he's headed for it event- inevitably when he finds out his daughter's still alive, who uh, died at the hands of the electrocutioner back, uh, back in the day. So uh, again, I I question DC's timing on this and and the the just the the timing of the release on this, but I think if people can just have some patience with the story, I I think there's going to be a payoff here because I think Infinite Frontier is a story that has a lot of potential here. I just hope Joshua Williamson and with with the help of guys like Brandon Thomas can pull it off. Yeah, you got to remember. I mean, I, I I get what you're saying because a lot of people won't see this until it's in print. But you got to remember that these this Infinite Frontier secret files was it a digital first. 
So each of the chapters was one week of, of release. So, But how many people know was, that? Like how many people really know that? Like a lot of people get their comics at the comic shop. I, I, that's yeah, what yeah I, I, I agree 100%. Um, so unless you're keeping up on the digital first releases and reading them as digital first releases, which I don't even – I do it sometimes. Um, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? I don't have time to go and and do that. Uh, and it's just it's just that's on me for choosing not to to read. I'll just read it when they collect it in print. Um, but then I I mean I wait till they're going to release it as a print, but then still end up reading it digitally from from <laughs> what the press copies are. But but my point being that this actually got released over a month ago in terms of yeah as a digital first. But you're right. There people are going to be like, wait, I thought he was a Black Lantern, but again, that's probably a different version. And yeah, a lot, a lot more to come in uh, in Infinite Frontier, the uh, the six issue mini. Uh, anyway, in the Infinite Frontier Secret Files, the next story is called "My Brother Is a Kind of Shadow." The story is by Dan Waters and Joshua Williamson. Dan Waters is the writer, art and color by Stephen Byrne. This is basically the Jade and Obsidian story. Um, and I got to like, I didn't know that Jade had died, so I'm not sure where that happened or I'm, I'm obviously I missed it as far as I know, she's been back. And apparently that happened in dark Knight death metal. So again, I, I wasn't sure, but the context of the story is she's, she's basically a little, a little camera shy. She's a little gun shy. Um, apparently her death was caused by the failure of her powers, like her, jade tattoo or whatever it is that allows her to access the power of the star heart. Cause she's basically a green lantern that doesn't have a ring, right? Like the original Alan Scott green lantern has the power of the star heart meteorite that charges his ring. And that's how he uses his powers. The star heart yeah. power is not embedded in a lantern for jade. It's, it's on her hand. Um, and that's how, where her power comes from. And like I said, apparently her death had something to do with that power failing. So she's scared to use her powers. She's she's worried that if she's flying or you know doing whatever, the power could cut out at any moment, and she'll fall to her death or she'll be killed in battle. Um, and so she's a little she's a little tentative. And in going on this adventure with her brother Obsidian and him kind of showing faith in her and um, just being there to support her, she her faith in herself, her belief in herself is sort of renewed. Um, so it's a, it's a good, uh, kind of brother sister story. It shows their bond. Uh, I think they're, they're both interesting characters. I think obsidian has come a long way from sort of the angry black youth. They sort of portrayed him as, um, and Jenny Lynn Jade has come a, a long way too. They, they both as characters have more layers than they did when they were first introduced it, when they were first introduced, they were kind of two dimensional, you know, they, they, here were these, these twins that were separated at birth and Todd obsidian was, uh, uh, adopted or was fostered to a family that was very abusive. Um, and so he grew up angry and Jenny Lynn was kind of fostered to, uh, or adopted by a family that was, you know, all rainbows and sunshine, white picket fence, that kind of thing. And so they were very much opposite in their personalities but so much so that there weren't any layers and they were just kind of stereotypes. And over the years, writers have come in and they've added more layers. They've added more positive side and Obsidian has sort of evolved and, and been able to come to terms with a lot of the trauma he suffered as a kid. And it's made him a more interesting character. And 
apparently they're trying to add a little darkness to uh, to Jade or Jenny Lynn, um, a little kind of negative um, emotion or, or kind of angst, which I think kind of makes her more interesting as well because you're getting more layers of, of characterization uh, now that she's back. Um, but at her core, she's still kind of happy-go-lucky, uh, more likely to smile than frown, and that's sort of what this story gets her back to. So um, I think it's it, it's a good story. If you're going to talk about art, I mean, Stephen Byrne always does, most of the time, does his own color work, and that really informs his art uh, to allow him to really make it jump off the page, and he does a good job uh, with this one. So I didn't have any complaints about this story. I am sort of curious. We didn't get a whole lot of Jade and Obsidian in the, the first issue of uh, Infinite Frontier in terms of what the role might be in the story. Obviously, Alan Scott's going to play a big role, and they're Alan Scott's children, so we would expect their roles to be um, pretty large as well, which is interesting because the, I would classify them as B characters at, at most, maybe even C-list characters for DC. They've never been really prominent, um, and I'm sure that there's a lot of fans of, of comic book movie and TV shows that have never heard of these two uh, because I don't think they've showed up in, in – outside the comic, except maybe in some cartoons, uh, some cartoon movies, but I'm not even sure of, I'm not even sure of that. So I thought this was a good one and uh, I'm curious to see what role they play in infinite frontier. So, yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm actually more interested in, in this chroma character. I, I, I'm sure I'm a, I can only assume that this, uh, chroma character must have appeared at some point in the green lantern series. I, I don't, you know, because uh, apparently J uh, Jade recognizes Chroma and said, you know, you promised not to return for a million years. And then I, I guess this Chroma is attracted to the new vibrational frequencies, the new oral structures, which I'm assuming were created from the recreation of the of the multiverse following uh, following death metal. And so and this Chroma, I believe, is also a non-binary character because I, I believe Obsidian refers to Chroma as they uh, used a, at first, I thought that it was an editorial and a typographical mistake, but then I realized <laughs> I got I realized I'm I'm behind the times, and I, I'm pretty sure there was one time that he referred to her as they. So uh, I don't I think uh, Chroma is meant to be sort of like gender neutral at a minimum. So so we we have some more diversity for Chroma, which kind of makes sense. I'm not the message here is kind of you know it's. On the one hand, it's a little bit tropey. This is very long. And basically the message that Obsidian tells Jade is, well, you know, we could die at any moment. And, you know, Chroma might return. This Chroma might return in 20 minutes and destroy the world uh, uh, or might return in 20 million years. But in the meantime, all we can do is live life to its fullest. And so it's all, you know, well and good and it's all great and everything. But uh, part of me is, uh, well, I guess this is a snapshot of just getting to know these characters because this really is not really telling us any necessarily anything we absolutely need to know. I don't think about the new about Infinite Frontier, other than just getting us to know this Obsidian and Jade and this Chroma character. I suspect this Chroma character is going to have much more significance in the Infinite Frontier storyline than. Because uh, these things, I can't imagine, it must be here for a reason. I, I, at least I hope. Um, Joshua Williamson is known for planting seeds that he doesn't go back to, unfortunately, in my experience with his Flash, but hopefully he's not making that mistake here. But uh, uh, I don't think we'll see Chroma. I mean, I mean, my gut says that we won't see Chroma in Infinite Frontier. 
Um, My take, my, my take on it was, was Joshua Williamson going back. So Chroma's a, 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 um, an infinity incorporated villain showed up in uh, infinity incorporated as first appearance and and showed up several more times and infinity incorporated was always able to uh, defeat them. Uh, cause yeah, they, they are gender, gender neutral. Um, so my take was it, they just, they brought a, um, a villain that was familiar to these two that was really powerful that has, uh, over the top powers to really send that message to, to make sure that message gets through to Jade that, Hey, life is short. You never know what's going to happen. So, you know, make, make the most of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily be surprised to see Chroma show back up, but I don't think it, it, I don't know that this is planting a, a seed because um, Chroma did die, I think, in Jeff John's Justice Society of America book. It, they've always been a villain that lived in that sort of area, you know, Infinity Incorporated, Justice Society, that kind of corner of the, the hmm. DCU. So, um, yeah. but very, very powerful, but but always kind of underused, never fought like Batman or Superman or anything like that. So, uh, like I said, I wouldn't be surprised to have him show back up, but I don't necessarily think that uh, they will. Uh, the next story is called The Two Totalities, also by Brandon Thomas and Joshua Williamson. The the writer's Brandon Thomas, art by Anika Miranda, colors by Nick Filardi, letters by Tom Napolitano. I don't really have that much to say about this one. This was one that didn't really resonate for me. Um, but Rocky mentioned earlier how we see two different totality, totality teams meeting, uh, discuss strategy, the, the totality team of Earth-0 and the totality team of Earth-23. Um the only thing that I will mention, I mean, it, it's a technically it's a fine story. I just um, like kind of like the last one, the way Rocky felt was just being introduced to the characters. I kind of feel like that here, but I didn't necessarily feel like this was any new information for me or I, I don't know. I, I sort of felt a little bit like what what's the point of this? Not sure. Well, I, I may have missed it, but I will say that. Seeing the psychic safe room of Martian Manhunter <laughs> using an Oreo cookie as the round table that they all sit around was worth reading this story because that, if, that if anybody awesome. remembers, yeah, if anybody remembers the classic Bwahaha era as it's referred to of the Justice League that was written by J.M. DeMatteis and Keith Giffen with art by Kevin McGuire, uh, that was kind of what, the first time that it was revealed or it, it was a, it was a, a thing in their stories in that era that um, the John Jones and Martian Manhunter loved Oreos. That was just like his favorite thing. So uh, kudos to uh, Williamson and Thomas for giving us an Oreo giant Oreo cookie as the table they're sitting at. I thought it was fantastic. So uh, anyway, what, what were your thoughts on this one, Rocky? Did you get well, more out of it than I did? Well, I think it was a major revelation, but I didn't know at the end of death metal, when there was a, ju- when there was a justice league totality satellite, at Earth designate zero, I had no, I did not know that every single Earth, every single universe has its own totality. I thought there was only one totality, but I think this is a revelation that every single that it's been revealed here that there are fifty-two Earths. The the multiversity is still intact. The fifty-two Earths are still intact, but there's just more of them. But the fifty-two Earths are there. And at least all of them have their own totality. So there's actually a totality Justice League satellite on all the different Earths. This is just two of them. This story deals with Earth Zero and Earth Twenty Three, and they have and the totality uh, members consists of heroes and villains of each individual Earth. And in this particular one, 
we've got the heroes and villains of the totality, of the Justice League totality, and the Legion of Doom, I guess, <laughs> for each of those Earths. Uh, they're both testing. They're, they're testing the satellite. They're, they're just basically running, uh, both Martian Manhunters, they both happen to be running a test. They're testing the system to detect anomalies at the same time, and they end up having, they end up crossing streams, and they end up fighting each other. And it's a giant misunderstanding. That's what this is. This is a giant misunderstanding between these two Justice League totality teams of Earth Zero and Earth 23. And uh, I, I got to give full credit here. I actually really enjoyed this. I thought it was uh, Brandon Thomas did a really good job here. I thought there was great characterization. I liked the interaction and the, and the arguments back and forth. I loved how Martian Manhunter was uh, sort of arguing with Lex Luthor, Mr. Terrific, Vandal Savage, Vixen. I mean, all of this w- was really good trying to potentially ascertain if there is a traitor amongst them. And, and of course, ultimately, it's it's deemed not to be the case. But I... I quite liked it. I thought this was very well done. I thought the characterization was well was was well done. And I think, like again, and 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 I keep I keep feeling like I I need to go back and reread some of this stuff. But I think that's a kind of a big deal. Part of me is almost critical. Like I I think that's almost kind of confusing that every single Earth has its own totality. I thought, are you kidding me? I mean, I thought things were confusing enough, but now every single Earth, every single universe has its own Justice League totality. And we, in addition to that, we also have Justice League Incarnate <laughs> that, that Kelvin Ellis is, is part of. So Kelvin Ellis is not only part of the Justice League totality, verse 23, he's also part of Justice League Incarnate for the multiverse and multiversity. And that's just a part of this. And in the meantime, we got Director Bones of the DEO of Earth Designate Zero trying to find out why all these various players that we're seeing in this secret files, why some of them remember their past and why some of them don't, uh, why most citizens now know there's a multiverse, but some remember their you know, multiversal lives, some don't. And we're going to be getting into that with... Uh, you know, uh, with uh, with Captain Boomerang in the in the uh, in one of the the final stories coming up, but there's there's a lot of interesting questions being put in play here. And um, in any event, I, I thought I think there's a lot to mine here. There's so much to mine where there's they can go in so many different directions that I just I feel a little bit like I, I'm not really sure wh- which way Joshua Williamson wants to pull the reader because it could. Uh, and so I think that's both a good and a bad thing. It's great that I see an Oreo cookie. I mean, that's, as you mentioned, that's so cool. That's awesome. <laughs> but <laughs> when I get into the heart and meat and potatoes of the story, I I want more than an Oreo cookie. <laughs> In- yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel, you know, remember when they did Crisis on Infinite Earths in 1985 because things were too confusing with too many different Earths? Yeah. And that was just, you know, Earth... Earth one, Earth two, Earth yeah. X, uh, Earth three—those th- th- were the main ones that you you saw, and a few others would show up from time to time. Um, and that was too confusing. And now, you know, fast forward thirty years later—not uh, to sound you know too get off my lawn and back in my day, but my God, in the last decade they've just between the multiversity and 52 earths. And then now the omniverse, it is getting really convoluted. Yeah. It's been less than six months. It's been less than six months since from the final issue of death metal. 
and we're right away yeah. jumping into this. I, I think that's a little bit. I I don't know if the average reader uh, is going to be able to take that. I, I I question that, and we and we're we're still not even sure about future state. And you know, we got questions about future state. And now we got questions about this. And you know, again, as a longtime BC reader, there in a twisted kind of way, I'm enjoying, I'm actually kind of enjoying this in a way, but how many people are lifetime readers like me that are willing to maybe put in the effort and enjoy, you know, you know, talking about this with like you and I do. So I don't know, man, I I would, I would love to know what the sales are so far in DC. I really hope the sales are doing okay, but I I question it. I really do. Cause I, I, I question the accessibility of all this. I really do. Yeah. I I agree with you because, I mean, it, even as a longtime reader, I think things are getting, I mean, I can sort of follow it, but the, the problem is since, basically since the new 52, we haven't, they've been sort of trying to have their cake and eat it too. The new 52 is a clean break, right? And you can argue the success of doing that. And uh, if they did it the right way, and even I think Dan Didio and Jim Lee even came out and said, yeah, the mistake we made was we didn't pay enough attention to the legacy and, and you know, that complete restart clean reboot without remembering we needed to maintain those relationships like you know wally west and uh, oliver queen and black canary and, and that sort of thing and they, they kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. they admitted that and so then we got rebirth but the thing was rebirth was what was what's called a soft reboot and so they never came out and said okay here's what we're changing here's what we're not you know we eventually had the the, the pre- the pre-Flashpoint Superman replaced the uh, the post-Flashpoint uh, Superman, and it, everything was just sort of malleable, and it wasn't. We didn't have true true answers. It wasn't like I said a, a hard reboot. It wasn't a, a crisis. Joshua Williamson said, "There's a big crisis, a big event coming next year, and maybe that'll be." I, as much as people complain about it, hey, what matters? What doesn't? What and DC's trying to do this everything counts thing, but and that's fine, you know, if you want to say it happened on this earth or that earth or whatever. But I do think that the DC universe could benefit from a, a clean reboot again and <laughs> say, okay, we're not saying that this clean reboot means that any of those stories don't count. All that stuff can still have happened and it just happened on various different earths. But what I'm talking about is give us a starting point for all the characters where we know what the status quo is of that character and just go forward from that point, you know, which is sort of in a way what they did with infinite crisis. Um, Cause you got a bunch of year one stories and miniseries coming out of that, which sort of provided new status quo. But I, I, I don't know what Marie Javins has, uh, has in store. So I guess we'll see anyway, getting back to the, the infinite frontier secret files. Next story is called truly Two. Written by Stephanie Phillips and Joshua Williamson. Well, story by Stephanie Phillips and Joshua Williamson. Written by Stephanie Phillips. Pencils by Phil Hester. Inks by Andy Parks. Colors by Nick Filardo. Uh, lettering by Tom Napolitano. This is the Captain Boomerang story that we were mentioning before, where basically Captain Boomerang has been brought back to life uh, after being devoured by a radiation-infused mutant hyena. And Bones is, is talking to him, and Boomerang doesn't even remember being devoured. And basically, Bones kind of puts him under stress, and he transforms into this crazy doomsday-looking, like doomsday-slash-Captain-Boomerang-type hybrid. 
Um, and they basically, he basically goes after uh, Bones and Bones has to outsmart him in a way. Um, this is another one kind of like the previous one where I felt like, okay, what, what's the point? Am I, am I just supposed to yeah. see this as sort of a, okay, here's why Bones is formidable. You know, it does remind us of his origins. He started out as a costume villain. The aforementioned Infinity Incorporated, he was a villain of them when he first showed up and then he eventually joined the team um, and then kind of evolved beyond that to not really a hero, not a villain, not a hero, more of a bureaucrat. Talks about his powers, his skin's like cyanide, whatever, it's poison. Yeah. And it's not that he's a skeleton. He, he has transparent skin. Um, so he looks like a skeleton, but he does have skin that holds him together and whatnot. So, uh, and I've always been a fan of bones. Actually. I, I, I liked him when he was in infinity incorporated. I wasn't as big of a fan when they brought him on the team. He was, a, I mean, and the whole reason they brought him on the team, like they do with a lot of villains is because he was really popular as a villain, you know, much like Harley Quinn. And so you, if somebody's a villain, you can't bring him into the book like month after month after month, right. With a different scheme, I guess unless you're the unless you're the Joker, because DC never gets tired of telling Joker stories, apparently. So the the trick is, okay, how do we get more of this character that people love? Well, we'll have him become good. We'll have him redeemed and become part of the team, and that's what they did with Bones. Um, but I don't, I, I don't, I don't. So I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about him as this bureaucratic head of the DEO. Um, but it's it, it's interesting. It's a, it's a different take on the character, and you know, as we know, we we're talking before about the different earths uh, and infinity incorporated spun out of all-star squadron, which was, you know, had a lot of members of the justice society and it was kind of that earth two corner of the DC universe. Uh, infinity incorporated originally wasn't in, on the main earth. And then after various crises, everything got lumped together and then it was. So here we have this character who started off as like a golden age type villain. Who's now the head of this uh, DEO, which, and, and, Let's not forget. Let's not forget. We talked about it when we talked about Checkmate. Uh, (laughs) Forget about the Leviathan, Checkmate, (laughs) all that stuff. Just figure that 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 all that whole story, whatever, is all completed uh, before this, because obviously the DEO's back and and Bones is back, and he's got his people working for him again, and that's how you just have to to look at it. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I I feel like this could have been anybody. They happen to choose Captain Boomerang. But it could have been anybody that just showed up as a threat to, to Bones and just showed that he's kind of formidable. I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's another reason for the story, but that's what it felt like to me because I, I can't – there's nothing else I can really point my finger on and say, okay, well, that's why they included it because Boomerang certainly isn't a um, a villain or a character of, of consequence. I mean, he shows up a lot also. I, I guess he people like him like in terms of fans and readers. That's why he's always in Suicide Squad. Maybe writers like him. I've never been a fan of Captain Boomerang. I think he's in, incredibly boring, um, and and never even back in the day against the Flash, I, I would always dread the Captain Boomerang issues. Um, and you know he was always the one mouthing off to Amanda Waller, and that that was always the one time where I was on Waller's side. Like, please just blow his arm off, Amanda Waller. Like back in the eighties, you know, when I was when it was only their arm. Yeah. Just would you just get rid of him already? Like, because I'm so tired of his whining. Um, and his attitude. Uh, and now, now I'm just like, can you just blow his head off? Can you just, I'm tired, you know, not to sound sadistic or whatever, but uh, just not, 
I, I can take very little of Captain Boomerang before I'm like, nope, tired of him, move on. So, well, sorry, I apologize to all you Captain Boomerang stands out there. <laughs> well, I, I think this is a wasted. Uh, this was a wasted issue. This was the most insignificant of the entire stories of in Secret Files. This was it wasn't necessary. Uh, I don't. This served no narrative purpose. We we learned nothing. Uh, all, all we know is. All we really know is Dr. Bones, for some reason, he keeps, he, he's recruited Chase along with himself to go and to inquire as to how many various other heroes and villains remember their multiversal selves. And, and I, my question is, so what? Like, I, I'm not really sure. What's the end game here? I mean, why, like Dr. Bones, we got to remember that Dr. Bones in recruiting Chase to become part of his team to go and check out these various heroes and villains who may or may not remember their 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 role in the past multiversal lives or whatever. He he showed Chase a picture of something. We don't know what it was, but when he showed Chase that picture, she that that right away she changed her mind and she she wanted to help him. Now I I don't know what that picture was. I'm guessing and and that that picture that that he showed Chase was it was that was in secret uh Infinite Frontier number one. I believe that I'm guessing that that picture may have been a picture. Maybe it was from. Did Barry Allen take a picture of the death of the um, of the quintessence, and maybe they realize that something really big is happening. This is my speculation based upon what we've seen here with Secret Files. I remember back with the original Crisis, and I, I know Joshua Williamson really likes the original Crisis. I remember the original Crisis in the months leading into original Crisis. The Monitor. Uh, went around and he he basically was studying the various heroes and villains and he was formulating a team and here almost like in the place of the monitor we have this director bones of the deo he's going around and he he's almost like in a monitor role he's studying he's clearly almost like he's putting together some information he's gathering intelligence but multiversal intelligence and all, it's almost like he's the counterpoint to dark side here and we're going to and psycho pirate in the last story in Secret Files, Psycho Pirate ends up Psycho Pirate ends up being recruited by Darkseid. So, as odd as it sounds, we have Darkseid on one side in the Secret Files, and we we seem to have Director Bones of the DEO <laughs> on the other, trying to recruit and trying to figure out all these uh, all these heroes. I I got to admit, I'm a little bit confused when he when he says when he asks Captain Boomerang if he if Captain Boomerang remembers dying during Death Metal. I remember everybody dying at the end of Death Metal. I thought I thought the cosmic gods resurrected everybody and and rebooted and sort of like rebirthed the the entire multiverse. So I thought everybody kind of died and they rebirthed everything. So I'm I'm a little bit surprised that he's asking, "Do you remember dying?" Well, didn't everybody die? I mean, I <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm I, there's I don't know. I I'm I'm probably overthinking it, but in any event. Let's talk about the final story, uh, Jace, uh, which is my favorite. I don't know about you, but I loved this Psycho Pirate story. Yeah, um, I agree. It's, uh, stories, yeah, stories by by Dan Waters and Joshua Williamson, uh, written by Dan Waters. Really cool art by Christopher Minton. I don't know that I've seen art by him before, but he's got a story here and in the, the Green Arrow uh, anniversary issue. Colors are by Dave Stewart. Letters by Tom Napolitano. Um, Psycho Pirate is a really powerful character, and I think he never really got his due. And even in the the crisis and and 
you know, kudos to, to Marv Wolfman who wrote the initial, uh, initial crisis on infinite earth story. Um, you know, probably the most consequential and influential story in DC history, you know, uh, and I say that knowing Watchmen exists and Dark Knight Returns exists, but Watchmen is its own thing. It's not part of the, or it wasn't part of the DCU and, you know, with Dr. Manhattan screwing with things and, and whatnot. But to me, that's a separate thing. Same thing with Dark Knight Returns. Wasn't in actual continuity. When I'm talking about, you know, the actual continuity of, of the DC universe, I think it's not up for argument. The crisis is the most influential story. And Marv Wolfman, pulled psycho pirate and used him in a very interesting way in that story. Um, and for the first time, somebody was actually tapping into just how powerful he was, but, but even so um, in the ensuing years, he wasn't used in that way ever again. And even in that story, he's kind of whiny. Um, and maybe that's just a part of who he is as a, you know, as a person. Um for the, for the longest time, he wasn't really, you know, Roger Hayden, his, his, you know, alter ego just was never like an assertive person. And so even when he becomes psycho pirate and he has the Medusa mask, he's just not somebody who is smart enough or intelligent enough or has enough agency to really take full advantage of his abilities. Right. And it sort of has always been that way. But with, with this story that, uh, Williamson and Dan Waters are writing, it feels like maybe he's finally going to take that extra step. And we have talked before about not having a really good uh, sense of um, who the rogues gallery is for Wonder Woman and her not having really great value. Obviously, Cersei and Cheetah and Ares, but eh, she could use more, right? I mean, I think a lot of people believe that Batman has the best rogues gallery, and I, I would argue that part of the reason Batman is so popular is because of who his rogues gallery are. Same thing with Spider-Man, um, Superman to a, to a lesser extent. And that's how you kind of build up a heroes by who they they battle. Um, and so I would hope that eventually somebody says, Hey, we need to make psycho pirate, like a, like a specifically a wonder woman villain, not to say he can't show up in other places, but I think that would, that would be good. That would be a step in the right direction. And I've always felt that way. Um, but I've also always felt like psycho pirate has been underutilized in terms of how powerful he is. So this story, and it's brilliant the way that it's set up with this guy who knows who Psycho Pirate is, just this you know random guy who is ambitious and craves power and goes to, to see Psycho Pirate and wants to kind of, uh, I don't know if he wants to be his apprentice or he wants power for himself. And basically he, he understands how powerful and the potential of psycho pirate. And he's hoping to kind of ingratiate himself. And so psycho pirate asks this guy three questions and he gets the first two questions. He has very interesting answers for, and the third one, not so much. Um, but at the end of the story, psycho pirate, his frustration is, is looking to be more than what he's been like, finally, right? Like it finally seems like Roger Hayden, that, that sort of personality is maturing, um, and who reaches out? Well, dark side, of course, because we know that dark side is, is the one that is sort of the big bad of, of infinite frontier. That's already been given away with infinite frontier zero. And the fact that despite all the different multiverses and all the different omniverses, there is only one dark side for all of them. Um, which again, and I've talked about this before as well, that dark side should 
be more well known than he is. And I, I know, like, oh, he showed up in Justice League and uh, you know the Zack Snyder Justice League, and and people do know his name more so than they used to. But I always feel like there should be more menace to Darkseid. And absolutely, not he's, he's not powerful, or you know, he's not a big threat because he is. But when people say Thanos in the Marvel universe, and more so now after the MCU for sure, but the, you know, the idea of Thanos as a villain, as a threat, and a lot of it has to do with the MCU. It is that is a menace. That is a threat. That that there's a sense of foreboding when you say, oh, they're going to be a Thanos story. Like, you know, that's going to be a big story and the heroes are going to be up against it. When you say it's going to be a dark side story, you know, you'll cro- go across the street to DC and say it's going to be dark night story. People kind of shrug their shoulders. Even DC fans themselves kind of, oh, well, we know, you know, th- they'll win. You know, dark side's been defeated before. Well, Thanos has been defeated every time too, but it still has that level, that threat level just feels like it's huge. And with dark side, it doesn't, um, like I would think, I would even say that people probably look at the Joker as more of a threat than than Darkseid, you know, as as more dangerous than Darkseid, and that just shouldn't be. Like Darkseid, Darkseid should be the the top of the heap when it comes to threats and villains and um, the you know a dangerous character in the DC universe. He should be it, and I, I feel like that's what Joshua Williamson is trying to do here. Whether or not he'll be successful. That's, you know, to be determined. Um, but the fact that Darkseid is going to use uh, Psycho Pirate, much in the way that the Anti-Monitor used Psycho Pirate, is, I like that idea. Because it does harken back to the original Crisis, where Anti-Monitor did use Psycho Pirate and use him as his powers, and he was sort of, uh, you know, his right-hand guy, even though he was still kind of whiny and muley. Um, but we've already seen uh, in the pages of Infinite Frontier uh, issue number one, that Psycho Pirate, not only is Darkseid going to use him, it looks like he's enhanced his powers. He's He's got a little bit of a different look. I feel like they're leveling up Psycho Pirate, which I think is cool because I think that he needs that. Uh, and he's been an underutilized character for a long time. So uh, I'm a big fan of Psycho Pirate. In fact, when the um, when the pandemic was kicked, up, uh, kicked off, um, like I make it sound like it's a concert tour, but when the pandemic first started... Uh, I was going through something, looking at different key issues that had been on my want list for a long time. And the, the first appearance of Psycho Pirate was on there. And I just never pulled the trigger on it. Uh, never could find one that matched up the value and the grade with what I was willing to pay. Hmm. But I did finally pick one up in the first few months of the pandemic. So I do own, I think it's, I want to say Showcase 84, but don't quote me on that. I'll look it up uh, while you give your thoughts, Rocky, on this uh <laughs> On this issue, uh, well, uh, part of me thinks that Bones is maybe the anti is is actually maybe Bones is the monitor in disguise, and that J- Chase is actually the incarnation of Harbinger from the original Crisis. Maybe that's what's going on here. I don't know, but it seems odd to me that here we got Darkseid, who clearly has recruited Psycho Pirate, and Psycho Pirate appears to have video recorded and videotaped his transition and his is his empowerment by Darkseid. He seemed to have videotaped it and sent the sent the cassette recording to to Bones of DEO. That seems like a very dumb thing. Like, why would Psycho Pirate concern himself with an insignificant character like Doctor Bones of the DEO on on a random Earth designate zero? It just seems like a really odd thing for Psycho Pirate to concern himself with. 
there clearly must be there there must be more to Bones here. This director Bones must be more than just he must be more than he appears. He has to be more significant than this because I I can't see why Psycho Pirate or Dark Side would concern themselves with Doctor Bones. It just seems so. Why would they send him a cassette? Did the cassette maybe they're taunting? I took it as they're taunting him. Well, I I thought maybe they're trying to seduce him with the anti life equation with the sound. It was was the they're going to seduce him with anti life to the sound maybe because he said he says oh oh no he says absolutely not and he he smashes the recording so I'm wondering is he basically preventing them from uh from from hearing the from from being converted I, I don't know but it it anyways it's very fascinating it's interesting I like it uh, I love the transition I like Psycho Pirates uh conversation with that with the guy that wants to sort of become his right hand man there those three questions you know what can the three questions were what can we know well only what our senses tell us was the good answer what is real only our emotions are real of course psycho pirate would like that answer he's he's all about emotions but the one question the guy failed to answer is who are you and the guy suggested that we are all born and raised and psycho pirate says something i think very revealing Psycho Pirate says, we, we are not born and raised because the multiverse is only months old. So he's confirming this universe is just months old so that nobody is really born and raised. Everybody was just sort of like sprung up into existence again. That's what that implies to me. Clearly, that's what I, I, I think that is the case. And if the multiverse is just sort of is only months old, well, then Darkseid... Uh, is Darkseid only months old too? Because remember, Darkseid embodied, Darkseid uh, amalgamated all his multiversal selves and all the omniverse. He pulled all his the aspects of himself into one massive being. And just by the way, let me give a compliment to, to artist Christopher Mitten here. There's a beautiful page here that for those who are listening to this on the podcast, I'll describe it. It shows Psycho Pirate in, in what looks like uh, almost like a James Bond image of, of like looking through a telescope and you see this image of Psycho Pirate and then it it pulls back and it's the period at the end of Dark Side Is. It's absolutely brilliant. I, I think it works so well and it's it's extremely effective and you really get a sense of the ominousness and the power of Dark Side. And again, just is another reason why this is uh, this is my favorite story here. But anyways, all in all here, the secret files, it's definitely it's got me excited and I've, I've, I've I'm asking all kinds of questions. I'm not even sure if I'm asking the right questions, to be honest, but I'm definitely asking questions. Joshua Williamson does have me intrigued. Uh, Brandon Thomas, kudos to him. He's done a great job. Uh, so is Dan Waters, Stephanie Phillips. You know, so I I am curious. I just hope more people have my uh, have my curiosity because I do think that this has a potential to be a really good crisis. I just hope it doesn't lose its way like Death Metal did. Yeah, let's not talk about Death Metal. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Showcase Fifty Six, by the way, first appearance of Psycho Pirate. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm in for Infinite Frontier. And what it leads to, which will probably be an even bigger crisis. And like I said, I hope it it gives us a at least a reference point to to restart the story for some of these characters that need it, uh, like uh, Wally West and and Roy Harper, like we discussed earlier. So, uh, all right, moving on to the next book. It's it's Teen Titans. It's basically the annual, but they call it the Teen Titans Academy Yearbook. 
a la, you know, high school yearbook kind of thing. Uh Um, And there's various stories in here. But the other thing they do is between the stories, they give us a few different um, just little snippets like you would see in a yearbook, which I I don't know if I liked it or not, to be honest with you. Like, I could have just taken the stories. Like, I don't know if some people will feel like it's wasted space. Like there's a faculty page and we see, you know, Nightwing, Donna Troy, Cyborg, Beast Boy, Raven. Under Nightwing, though, it says bio not provided before print deadline. Am I supposed to think that that's the print deadline for the actual comic or is that? And so there's like in the, the actual comic when it's released on Tuesday, we'll have something there or is, yeah, I, is it like I, I didn't know what that what that was. So uh, there's also another one that's got some candid pictures and whatnot and. Then there's this the you know most athletic, best hair, most likely to succeed, and all that sort of stuff. And then there was a, a an ad page that had some interesting things, uh, like s- something about All Star Squadron. Could that book possibly be coming back? Um, but mostly, what we got most of the the issue was taken up with with various stories. Uh, the first one is by writer Tim Sheridan. He's also the writer that writes the regular Teen Titans Academy. Uh, art by Bernard Chang. Marcella Maiello does the colors. Rob Lee on letters. It's called Stitch in Time. And it's basically a spotlight on Stitch, who we met for the first time, I think, in Teen Titans Academy number one. I think that's their first appearance. Also, much like uh, Chroma, a non-gendered character, uh, because it's basically an animated like doll, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And we noticed it right away. It looks like Ragman. I mean, it's a bunch of, you know, patchworks of fabric that are sewn together. Doesn't have any internal organs. Doesn't have any external, you know, genitalia or anything like that. So uh, obviously would be non-binary, non-gender because it doesn't have any sex. You know, it doesn't have any organs, but it is somehow magically alive. Um, And interesting enough character, I'm, I'm curious to learn more about them. Um, and we get a little bit of uh, characterization here. There's some cool character moments. Definitely struggling to find their place in the world, especially being that they don't have a gender identity and don't even know what it's like to be human, right? To grow up because they're not human. Like, what is it to grow up and develop attachments and f- make friends and, th- and that sort of thing? And so that kind of journey and those kind of questions with a being like this, a magical being who is just sort of alive, I, that's that's interesting to me. Uh, and they have a connection to Dr. Fate, which shows up here. And I, I, there was a little bit of humor uh, that I thought was kind of funny. And yeah, I, overall, I thought it was a pretty solid story. What do you think, Rocky? Uh, I did. Uh, I thought it was I thought it was pretty good. I Stitch is a really odd character, uh, but I, I like the idea of Khalid Nasser, Khalid Nasser, Dr. Fate did. I guess create Stitch. I would be kind of curious to know how or why he created her. She's, I mean, she doesn't even have a digestive system, and as and then she kind of she goes on an angst trip talking about how she has no friends. But Stitch ultimately becomes the class president, and she ends up saving the day. Uh, there's a couple of other students that get into a fight in the gym, and she ends up saving the class. And she does realize that she does have friends, and they do like her. And uh, one one thing that this Teen Titans Academy uh, yearbook did, and I think it did, um, I think it did well enough. Bec- 
I finally felt for the first time that I'm slowly starting to get to know these characters a little bit better because one of the reasons why I think Teen Titans has not really worked all that well is it's been so tied up with the Red X mystery that we've lost a lot of some necessary character development. Uh, now, we, we do have some Red X intrigue in this particular yearbook, so we, we can't avoid Red X. Heck, it's even on the cover, for God's sakes. But uh, having said that, most of this yearbook, we get to know the characters a little bit more. We get snapshots of their characters, of their personality, of their of of their interactions. Uh, we get a sense that this is a school, and that these are teenagers, and that they're you know there's 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 bullies, there's 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 nice people, there's there's jerks, there there's alpha males, there's there's you know there's a little bit of everything, and so I kind of like that. It's not as good as Strange Academy. It's not as good as Marvel's Strange Academy yet, uh, but it's, you know, I like the fact that we're slowly starting to get some character development. And Stitch is actually a character that I, I do find very intriguing, very interesting. And uh, I think there's a lot of potential for the character. Still a lot of questions I have about Stitch, but I'm asking the right questions. I'm actually interested in this magical creature, no digestive system, and yet strangely enough seems to have a lot of human emotion. And yet she's, is, is they human uh i i don't know so but at the very least i'll learn to properly uh, use the appropriate pronoun uh while reading about her uh about her characters uh i i like i like the uh it, this does read like a yearbook uh this you know you get uh, i find it interesting that again this is the this Teen Titans Academy is called Roy Harper. It's the Roy Harper School like memoriam. I mean, so this school was created in memory to Roy Harper. And it's kind of interesting because Roy Harper is, well, we know he's still alive. So it's kind of odd what's going to happen when Roy Harper comes back. He's a Black Lantern. And we, we also know that at some point, at some point, the Bat Pack are going to try to revive Roy Harper from the dead using Miguel's dial uh, H dial. So that we got that to look forward to. So... Uh, but I I thought this worked r really. I, I I did think that this worked r really well. And um, yeah, uh, Tim Sheridan goes on to write this uh, this story. Five more minutes with uh, uh, artist Mar uh, Marco Santucci. Gorgeous art between, uh, and it's basically a date between Beast Boy and Raven. I thought this was um, I thought this was absolutely beautifully drawn. But <laughs> what a waste! Is, nothing happens. They just uh, all, all Raven talks about is that she she's having visions, and we know that the visions she's having are, and as she says, they're only they're only premonitions if they come true. But while she doesn't say it, the visions she's having, I believe, are the visions she has of what we know will happen in future state. So right now, I think it's writer Tim Sheridan's way of saying that they're just visions now. They're not premonitions yet because it might not happen. The future is still uncertain. Future state may not happen because <laughs> we're always wondering: Will future state happen or won't it? And we're we're kind of can you know? I think we're slowly moving toward the idea that it's not going to happen. It's going to be avoided somehow. And I think this sort of is sort of hinting at that, while at the same time giving us a nice moment between uh, Beast Boy and uh, Raven. So, um, what do you think of that, Chase? Yeah, I mean, I. I... I agree with you. There's not much that happens and it. It's, it feels to me like the only reason this story exists in this book is to remind us, Hey, remember that future state teen Titans story that's still in play. Don't forget because <laughs> yeah. we haven't forgotten. 
that that I, that's the only reason that this this is here in in my opinion. Yeah, like we haven't forgotten. We remember how bad it was. Don't worry, we we haven't <laughs> forgotten. But that, that I feel like that's why they put it in here. Don't forget that that whole mess and you know that that and it did t- it tied into the future state flash. It tied into to um, the future state Shazam Justice League story and what have you. So yeah, we know it's a big deal what happened there and it tied in with the red X mystery and all that too. We, we got it. We're, we're aware. Uh, the next story is called mother's brothers, kittens and cake. It's also by Tim Sheridan. Darko La Fuente is the artist. Uh, Miguel Muerto does the colors, Rob Lee on letters. And basically this is just a story of Tubi and uh, is it Matt price? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it just, it just shows that they're good friends. And this is kind of the, the origin of that story. Um, Basically, it's uh, the weekend for the, the students at the academy, so they have time off. Matt doesn't have anywhere to go. He doesn't have a family. Marvin um, or Tubi has gone upstate to uh, to visit his family, and their barn catches on fire. And Tubi kind of calls out for help, and Matt answers, helps them put out the fire, and then uh, meets Tubi's parents, and they kind of take them under their wing. What you don't have a family? Then we're gonna you're gonna be part of our family, and it. It just shows how the basically these two students bond. So to Rocky's point earlier, it's just a chance uh, finally for us to get some characterization of some of the students because he's 100% right when he says for the first four issues, you know, we've we've had it feels like just Red X stuff and Suicide Squad crossover stuff. We haven't had time to get to know the the students. So uh, I appreciated this story for that reason. Yeah. Uh- uh, I agree. And uh, they're definitely playing off Matt Price. It, clearly, it's kind of an inside joke, I think, both to the reader and, and even for the characters themselves, that everyone thinks of Matt Price as a, sort of like a Superboy-like Super clone. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and, and he very much seems to come across that way. And in fact, e- even now with there's there's a very strong uh those of us who are fans of connor kent know that connor kent lived on the farm with jonathan and martha kent and and here we have matt price living with tubi and his parents on basically a farm and it it's got it's got a very strong connor kent feel with this matt price and so it's clearly that's intentional and on the part of writer uh, tim sheridan he's definitely going with that and uh uh, we still, even Matt Price, he's, I, I forget exactly what his, uh, uh, actually he fell out of the sky, his origin, he just recalls falling out of the sky and he's got these powers. So the origin yep. of Matt Price, we still really don't know what his origin is. So for all we know, he might be a glorified Superboy from another earth. Who who knows in the omniverse of things, what's going to be revealed, but it is D- nice. D- Go ahead. Yeah. I- a de-aged Connor Kent, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But no, this, this well, is a nice story. That way DC could say, so we aged up John Kent. Sorry that we ruined him. But look, we de-aged Connor to make up for it. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, all right. Well, the last story is called Extraction. Here comes the Red X, the requisite Red X story uh, by writer Tim Sheridan. Rafa Sandoval does the pencils. Jordi Tarragona on inks. Alex Sinclair on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Gorgeous art. Um, showcasing all the detail that Rafa puts into his art. Jordi Tarragona inks. Gives a lot of grit. Uh, beautiful colors by Alex Sinclair. It's very, very brightly colored. Um, and it's basically the story of nine years ago, Red X being out there saving uh, foster kids that are basically being trained up to be foot soldiers for uh, Black Mask. 
And but then at the end of the story, which then jumps forward to only three months before the first issue of uh, Teen Titans Academy, and we have somebody offering this figure in shadow, two figures in shadow, one of them saying to the other, "So, kid, do you want the mask or not?" So, to me, that is indic indicative of there's been more than one Red X over time. So, if anything, all this story does is raise more questions about what the hell is Red X? Who is Red X? What's going on? I don't know. Um, and I've said it before, but I'll say it again because it bears mentioning. I just hope they don't drag it out too long. Yeah. Um, uh, and and if, if they were just going to have Red X be a, a character and not be shoving the mystery down our throat, I'd be okay with that too, right? Like I, I think of it as like Wolverine, right? Like his origin was a mystery for years, years and years, if not decades. And it was mentioned once in a while, but it wasn't the driving force of the narratives of the Wolverine stories. And we were all okay with that. And then eventually we got the Weapon X and, and Marvel Comics Presents. And then eventually we got the origin series uh, by, um, oh my God, how am I drawing a blank? Paul, who wrote it? Uh, what's the, Paul's? The what stories? Sorry. The origin uh, miniseries. Paul Jenkins? Paul Jenkins. There you go. Oh my yeah. God. I can't believe I was yeah. blanking on Paul's last name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paul Jenkins. Eventually we got, eventually we got it. Right. Yeah. But that's the problem with Red X. Like if they were just, if he was just a member of the team and we we're just getting Red X stories and it wasn't constantly being shoved at our face that it's a mystery. That's the frustrating part. Okay. You're giving us mystery, mystery, mystery. That's the only aspect to Red X and who is he and all these questions. Just tell stories with them. And I would argue that the, the, best Red X story that we've had so far, or the best issue that we've had that, uh, that we seem to enjoy the most was the one where he was breaking out of bell rev, that suicide squad issue where that was, it wasn't focused on who he was necessarily. It was just showing his powers, showing yeah. how powerful he was, showing how capable he was. And that's fine. That I, I'll take Red X stories like that, but if you're going to shove the mystery at us over and over and not give us any answers, I'm going to get tired of that. So yeah. don't drag it out for a year, two years, what have you. If but you want also, it to be a mystery forever, then fine. Have it be a mystery forever, but don't shove yeah. the mystery in our faces. Just let it be part of the background of the character. Well, I think that unless Red X is two people, and potentially it could be, I mean, there's a. it seems to be like almost a legacy character. Red X passes on the mask to a younger generation. But yeah. I mean- this was only nine years ago. This this kid here looks to be what five six years old, and so what was he? The the, the red X we've seen in action so far is is older than fourteen or fifteen years of age. He's certainly been drawn that way. So something doesn't add up here, unless there was a massive mistake uh, by the artists because they weren't they were drawing an adult. I mean, the red X we've seen so far in every incarnation, he's an adult. He's drawn like an adult. Uh, certainly uh, in the eight. In, uh, I would I would guess he's, he's even in his 20s, but even if I grant you he's 18, I have a hard time believing that this this current incarnation of Red X that we've been seeing is actually this kid who's been had. I, I didn't get that. Yeah, I didn't think it was the kid at all. Well, the, well, the kid on the very last scene, the the the, the guy the, says, "So, kid, you want the mask or not?" Meaning, so this kid now has grown up, and the guy's offering him the mask. No, so, I didn't get that. I didn't get that at all. So what is he? Yeah, what is he, he referring he's to? He's saying, then? he's saying, so kid, wh whoever this kid is, but I don't take that to be the same kid because that would be they're basically telling us that Red X is this kid who's a nobody. I mean, we don't know who this kid like the 
Well, this kid might be a member of Teen of Titans Academy. So n- now, I mean, what they're oh, hinting have- at is that if this is if kid, you want the mask or not? If this kid is t- taking the mask, who is that kid? Because that kid could potentially okay. be Red. The X. kid in the shadows. The kid in the shadows is clearly a member of Teen Titans Academy, but we yes. don't know who it is. That's right. We have no idea who this kid is. He's a member of Teen Titans Academy. Yes. But that kid in the shadows who's being offered the mask is not the little boy from earlier in the story. You don't think so? No, I don't think so because we haven't seen that little boy. We haven't seen – like there's nobody that we've been introduced to at Teen Titans Academy so far that could match up to that little boy that's in the story earlier. Well, I I don't think one has to do with the the (laughs) other at all. I agree with you, but I mean, you, you look at the transitions. I mean, it, you know, he's, you know, it, it transitions from the past to the present with, with the older Red X talking to the small kid. You know, do you know why the Red, the X is red, kid? And it's the color of their blood. And then the next scene is this, is this guy wearing a cap saying, so kid, you want to wear the mask or not? Well, I'm, I'm getting the strong impression it's the same kid grown up and now remember. I, yeah, I didn't well, get that at all. I, well, you I might be. Thinking. I, I don't. Uh, I, I'm just confused then, because I I don't know what. To me, it's an odd transition to make. It seems out of sync if there isn't some relationship between that those scenes. But, 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 hey, man, I. And uh, and okay, so and, and let's assume that I'm wrong and you're right. This kid looks like he's about what six or seven, which would mean that when <laughs> he's standing there, you know, nine years later, he would be fifteen or sixteen. I could see yeah. that. Well, yeah, I know that, that's right. X, I could see the current Red X being that age. It certainly seems like the Red X from nine years ago is is an adult, though. Yeah, I so it, it, but, but 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 the Red X that was that 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 took down the Suicide Squad that was uh, captured by by Amanda Waller. I mean, he certainly. I mean that 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 wasn't a fourteen or fifteen year old kid. No, I said fifteen or sixteen. Well, yeah, I know, but still, I I just have a hard time. It just it, it just looked like an adult to me. I I don't know. I mean, I I I see a lot of fifteen to sixteen year olds say they they're not they don't quite look like adults. And again, maybe I'm nitpicking here, but it just something just seems off to me. I'm just well. Again, this goes to the fact that they're they're putting them everywhere. They're putting them in multiple books. There's no sort of consistency to it, and they've. I feel like they're building this mystery the wrong way there's there's building a mystery and and getting people intrigued but we've gotten so little context that it becomes problematic and we end up just it's one thing to guess and have theories about who red x is what his origin is is he a legacy character but like that's all fine and fun you know we can kind of speculate but when but when we're completely lost yeah i think that's a problem and we don't even have enough context or understanding of what Red X is, who is, what his powers are, where he comes from. Like, there's not enough. You want to keep his identity a secret? That's fine. Well, but at least give us some context. Like, what are his powers? Where well, I, did he come I, from? You know I, what I mean? I want to know why we're supposed to care. Like, what well, has he I done mean. wrong? Like, is he a criminal? Is he a bad guy? Is he killed? Like, what's the, who cares? Like, I, I still haven't, I still, I don't feel we've been told why we're supposed to care. Who's right, X? Who cares? Like, I, I just, you know, I mean, they're, they're building an entire yearbook around Red X and nobody seems to know who he is. I mean, this, this there's an absurdity to this and it's dry and, and it's, and it's, it goes beyond just a yearbook. I mean, the actual suicide squad 
is is wondering, you know, is once is angry at Red X and they want to take him down. This Red X is a maybe a fifteen or sixteen year old, and he's taken out Peacemaker or Peacekeeper or whatever, uh, Peacemaker. Sorry, but anyways, it just like I said, I well, yeah, the fact that you and I are are you know we're trying we're we're going back and forth here trying to figure. You know, it's, I don't know. I just, I'm just shaking my head. It just seems like, uh, you know, it just seems like a cluster F, uh, cluster screw. <laughs> yeah, it does for sure. All right. Well, let's move on to the last book. Green Arrow 80th anniversary, hundred page, spectac- super spectacular, ton of stories here. Um, and I don't necessarily need to comment on every one. I thought there were some that were okay. There were some that, uh, were less than okay. I'm not going to, Point, point out any fingers, uh, but let me give the credits. So the first story, The Disappearing Bandit, Mariko Tamaki is the writer, Javier Rodriguez, art and colors, and world design does letters. Punching Evil by Tom Taylor, art by Nicholas Scott, Annette Kwok on colors, Clayton Cal on letters. Who Watches the Watchtower, Stephanie Phillips is the writer, Chris Mooneyham is the artist, Mike Spicer on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Just the usual sort of stuff, Mike Grell, writer and artist, Laverne Kadersky on colors, Travis Lanham on letters, The Arrow and the Song by Ram V as writer, Christopher Mitten on uh, artist, Yvonne Placencia colors, Aditya Bidikar on letters, one by Brandon Thomas, Jorge Corona is the artist, Matthias Lopez on colors, Steve Wands on letters, Green Man and Autumn Sun by Devin Grayson, Max Fuamara on art and colors, Ariana Marr on letters, Star City Star, Phil Hester, writer and pencils, Andy Parks on inks, Trish Mulvihill on colors, Clem Robbins on letters, Happy Anniversary by Vita Ayala, Laura Braga is the artist, Adriana Lucas on colors, Becca Carey on letters, Sympathy of the Woods from Benjamin Percy, Otto Schmidt art and colors, Nate Picos on letters, The Last Green Arrow Story from Jeff Lemire, Andrea Sorrentino on art, Jordi Belair on colors, Rob Lee on letters, and then Tap, Tap, Tap. Uh, Larry O'Neill, who's the son of Denny O'Neill, is the writer. Jorge Fornes is the artist, and Dave Stewart does the colors. Uh, and much like a lot of the previous uh, issue 1000s and 80th anniversaries and whatnot, there are covers that cover certain decades. So the 40s covers by Michael Cho, 50s covers by Daniel Warren Johnson and Mike Spicer, 60s covers by Neil Adams. 70s cover is by Derek Chu. 80s cover is by Gary Frank and Brad Anderson. 90s cover is by Howard Porter and Yvonne Placencia. The thousands or aughts decade variant by Jen Bartel. And the teens or tens decade variant by Simone DeMeo. Now, it says the regular cover is by Dan Mora. But any comic fan, DC fan, should know that that's not Dan Mora art. That's Dan Panosian art. It's even signed by him right there, Panosian. So... I think that's a mistake by DC. Hopefully they fix that uh, before it goes to print. Um, yeah. But in our copy, it says it says Dan Morris. So uh, the first story is very much a, just an old school kind of golden age type story. I don't really have anything to say about it. It's it's okay. It felt very golden agey. Um, I don't I don't really have anything else to add. Uh, do you have anything to say about the disappearing bandit there? Uh, uh, well, it, it, the disappearing bandit, it, it, it definitely reminds me of sort of like the uh, golden early silver age of, of Green Arrow where, where Oliver Queen was very much, he was much more akin. He was almost written exactly like uh, uh, Bruce Wayne, but with a bow and arrow. 
where he had a ward where, you know, uh, Red Arrow was his ward and he basically had all these trick arrows and, and this is, uh, this is really just a, you know, this disappearing bandit. It, this, this was a very straightforward story where this bandit always disappeared and they always escaped from him. And, and at the end, uh, all, Oliver, you know, basically, uh, teaches a young, uh, uh, Roy Harper that, uh, there's, you know, that, you know, he has a, a disappearing arrow that, uh, that he ut- utilizes. So there's poetic justice at the end of this. The disappearing pandit is ultimately defeated by an exploding rainbow arrow that gives him with rainbow paint. And then, it, then it, the arrow also disappears like the, like in the, like in the part of the rainbow spectrum that's invisible to the eye. And that's how this sort of disappearing bandit is defeated by the disappearing, disappearing arrow. And so it's, it's a nice touch. Marika Tamaki did a good job here. It was, it was a nice story. It was a nice callback. It was, it was good. You know, I didn't mind it. Yeah. yeah art was pretty good I, too. I thought. Yeah. The art was fine. It definitely harkened back to the era, but I felt like the story was just, <laughs> meh. I mean, it felt, yeah. it, it, it felt very throwaway, which, a lot of the stories back then were throwaways. So in that way, it was very <laughs> reminiscent of the time. Uh, the next story has my favorite art in the entire book because the art's by Nicholas Scott. Uh, Tom Taylor's the writer. Annette Kwok does a great job on the colors to make it seem sort of nostalgic. And we basically get the origin of the boxing glove arrow. Yeah. Uh, I love it. And Fantastic. That, and that, yeah. And that's basically <laughs> the whole point of the entire story is to yeah. give us the origin of the boxing glove arrow. Um, but, the Nicholas Scott art, I mean, I just, this Gorgeous. is amazing. Yeah. It is, yeah, and the color, I'll, I'll especially call out the color work by Annette Kwok because the way she colors it um, in this kind of realistic sort of way is what really makes the, the art yeah. shine. And that Black opinion. Canary, man, the way she draws Black Canary and the art just yep. gorgeous, gorgeous women. Yeah, yeah so, uh, yeah, really fun story. One of my one of probably one of my favorites in the book. Yeah, yeah. I, Anything else to add? Yeah, well, yeah. Just I, I love, I love how at the end, he, you know, uh, the idea was, uh, you know, uh, Oliver Queen wants to get, you know, he wants to learn how to get a get a boxing lesson from Wildcat Ted Grant, and Ted Grant's basically telling him that, you know, your arrows aren't going to help you for everything. I mean, you, you got to learn how to fight, and you got to sometimes you. you, you it might take one punch is what you'll need. And of course, uh, of all things, they're, they're attacked by, of all people, the yellow wasp and the yellow wasp picks out Ted Grant and <laughs> in a fit of almost desperation, but br- brilliantly inspired, uh, Oliver po- pokes his uh, arrow into a boxing glove and uh, you, it literally is one punch, <laughs> but on the end of an arrow that takes out the yellow wasp. But it was just, it was, it was very well done. It was a, it's a great callback because we all know how over the years, it's been a running joke with Green Arrow. He's got these crazy, ridiculous arrow trick arrows and probably the most crazy one is the boxing glove at the end of an arrow. And it's just, it, it really is. It's probably one of the most, uh, one of the most beautifully drawn and the most, Probably one of the most, uh, I think, appropriate stories in, in in the entire compilation. Although the the final story, I uh, it's this is actually my second favorite story. The the last one is my favorite, but we'll get to that. Uh, who watches the Watchtower? Stephanie Phillips, Chris Mooneyham, Mike Spicer, Tom Napolitano. To me, this is the most Green Arrow of the stories, and I know Stephanie Phillips is a huge Green Arrow fan, and I think this is the Green Arrow that a lot of people remember from kind of the classic satellite era of the Justice League. Yeah. Uh, and this was the Green Arrow that was always mad. He was always arguing. He was always picking fights with Batman and Superman. 
<laughs> uh, and it's no no different here. There, the whole Justice League is going on a mission, and it's Green Arrow's turn to stay back on on monitor duty, and he's bitching about it, saying, "Why are you leaving me behind?" Blah blah blah. Um, and then basically the the uh, tower gets attacked, and he repels the alien invaders all on his own, and makes a big mess of the tower, and then pretends like nothing happened, and everybody comes back, which pisses them off, and he he loves it. So, uh, yeah, I just it, for me this this it, it was great because Stephanie Phillips got a chance to write what I would what she probably considers her Green Arrow, you know, this Oliver Queen that's you know just anti-establishment and. Uh, kind of stick it to the man kind of thing. And even though he's a member of the justice league in a way, justice league is part of that establishment that he's trying to take down. So yeah. Uh, that, great that, story. I, I like that. He pisses off Hawkman. Cause I always remember, I always remember that uh, green arrow and Hawkman always, they hated each other. They're always yep. arguing. And I love the yep. fact that uh, one of the, the, that Hawkman's helmet gets injured here. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, Oliver just has a smirk and grin on his face as he's sipping coffee from his Justice League mug <laughs> at the end. So it was it was well played. It was definitely a nice callback. I, I mean, I, that's a classic era of the Justice League uh, comic book run there. And yeah, it's it's great. Stephanie Phillips, uh, I, this is a really nice tribute. Yeah, definitely. Uh, same thing with the next one. Just the usual sort of stuff written and illustrated by Mike Grell. You know, and he, he did the Longbow Hunters, which sort of brought Green Arrow back to prominence after Crisis. Um, and, it, yeah, it was just interesting to see him tell a story with Green Arrow and Shadow uh, once again. And this one ends in such a way that maybe it's not the end because it says definitely not the end. And Green Arrow and Shadow are rescuing some women that are being um, being sold as slaves, you know, human trafficking. And definitely a kind of a real-world problem you know, street level type stories and characterization that, uh, that Mike Grell used to do so well. So be curious to see if there's more of that to come and if Green Arrow is getting another, uh, another series. It's been a while since he's had his own series. So we'll see anything to add to that Rocky. Uh, not really. I honestly, I, I really got into, uh, Mike Grell, the longbow hunters. Is there a more classic, uh, Green Arrow series ever than that? Uh, just classic, and I, I I fell in love with Shadow, the character Shadow that uh, is portrayed here in all her glory, and I just love it. There's something about Mike Rell and uh, Green Arrow; they definitely go together. I mean, it's such a great combination, and I love the fact that when we might be seeing more of it, uh, because it does say definitely not the end at the end of this series, and I'm at the end of this small story, and yeah, and it reminds you know at one point in this story, uh, Oliver turns to Shadow and said, uh, you know, remind me to you know. He mentioned something about, you know, yeah, whose idea was it to come to Bolivia? It sort of reminded me about, it reminded me a little bit of the rapport between uh, Hawkeye and Black Widow in, uh, in, in the, in the, in, you know, just in the, in the Marvel movies. And uh, I, I like to see that. I, I think we need to have more of that sort of character building with the, with these great characters. And uh, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I hope it's definitely not the end as it teases. Yeah. The next story is by uh, Ram V, Christopher Mitten. Yvonne Placencia colors that did a bit of car letters. Uh, and it's basically the arrow and the song. And it's, it's kind of a, a humanizing story for green arrow. And uh, it, there's a poem that kind of narrates the story. Uh, and Ram V took inspiration from Longfellow. Uh, so we get Amico, we get some Oliver queen and Dinah Lance uh, love story, if you will, sort of talking about their 
relationship. And in a way, it's it's a very sort of quick. Here's a timeline of of Oliver Queen. Here's him being a spoiled billionaire on a boat. Here's him being stranded on an island. Here's him falling in love with Black Canary. Here's him interacting with his daughter. Um, so I, I thought it was okay. I, I think that if you don't aren't familiar with with Green Arrow, if you're not familiar with Oliver Queen and the things he's been through in his life, that you may feel like it's lacking because you don't really have any points of reference. Um, so it's not Ram V's best work, but uh, I thought it works. Yeah. Is that is that supposed to be Amiko, the, the young girl yep. in the story? Yep. Yeah, okay. that's what I took it as. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, for some reason, I didn't know. Is she, is she a, I guess she is. She is, she is a woman of, uh, she is a girl of color, isn't she? Well, yeah. Cause Cause her she's mom shadows, is, uh, she's yeah, yeah. shadows offspring, yep. right? Okay. Yeah. 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 Yep. That, sorry. I'm just, uh, it's been a while, man. <laughs> it's good. I'm glad I'm glad I'm reading this, refreshing my memory. But, uh, yeah. No, I, I like this. This was really nice. Uh, Ram V, like I said, I, I, I wasn't aware that that was, I assume that was probably from some, some famous writer you said Longfellow uh and yeah this is this is this is beautiful and oh yeah it actually says I'm looking right at it it says after Longfellow yes yeah. yeah it's it's very it's very beautiful it's it's like I said it's just you know it's a feel-good story and it, and it works and it it nails down the family feeling between uh between Oliver and uh, Di- uh Diana and Amico yeah yeah, next up we have this little interlude called Lessons in Friendship with Oliver Queen where they, they pull in these little panels from all these different appearances of Oliver over the year and they kind of make fun of the, these rules that he has, Lessons in Friendship with Oliver Queen. Uh, what's interesting is there's no, there's no credit for who put this together, yeah. <laughs> but definitely some, you know, some interesting moments in Oliver Queen's interactions with other heroes. It definitely reminds us that Oliver Queen is a pretty antagonistic and argumentative character. <laughs> Or has been at, at times in the DCU. Uh, next up, we have a story called uh, Star City, uh, or one rather, that takes place in Star City. Written by Brandon Thomas, Jorge Corona on art, Mateus Lopez on color, Steve Wands on letters. Uh, I'm used to Jorge Corona's art being much more clean than this. This is really dirty. I didn't care for this style for uh, Corona. I prefer his much cleaner style. It's a Connor Hawk story, but it didn't feel to me like the Connor Hawk that I'm familiar with. It didn't even feel like the new Connor Hawk that we've had in Robin. So this was probably my, my least favorite. Uh, it just, I didn't really understand the point other than, Hey, it's a green arrow 80th anniversary. We should put a Connor Hawk story in here. I mean, we're told that Oliver Queen is dead, but again, like what's the timeline? What's the context? I don't know. I just felt kind of lost and the story was just kind of there. I didn't really see the point of it. It's interesting that you say that because this is actually a story where I felt a little bit more at home only because one of my favorite eras of uh, Green Arrow was the Connor Hawk era when when it was the Kyle Rayner and Connor Hawk and they even had a series Green Arrow and Green Lantern and this this and during that era Connor Hawk was the only Green Arrow and and his and Oliver, Oliver, and Oliver was Queen was dead, dead. and so so yeah. I actually related to this story and I actually felt a little bit more at home in it and I actually got into the character a little bit more only because for once my memory didn't play too many tricks on me but <laughs> yeah I mean so, if, if this if this story is supposed to be set in that era that does make it make a lot more sense yeah. um, but I just felt so lost because I, I had no frame of reference for it so yeah, yeah maybe under that frame of reference it does work a little better 
Yeah. Well, I like the, I thought the story was pretty good. It's called one. And the one refers to the fact that Connor Hawk only has one, one arrow to use against the terrorists that have taken over Queen Industries. And he utilizes that one arrow. He keeps reusing the same arrow until he finally defeats the, uh, the, uh, the lead terrorist. And I thought it was, uh, well done. I agree with you. The art, the art was a little bit, uh, choppier than what I would normally expect, but it was still, it still felt it still felt like Connor to me enough that I I definitely enjoyed the story. Yeah, that's that's fair. And like I said, if it, if I frame it in that context of yes, that's when because I I loved that era as well. Um, I think he died in issue ninety of the series, and the series ended up going like one hundred and fifty issues. Uh, yeah. I, Oliver Queen died in, in ninety, so I went another sixty issues with Connor as right. the headliner. Uh, next, we have Green Man and Autumn Sun, Devin Grayson, Max Fumara, Ariana Mar. Uh, and this is a story of uh, Arsenal or Roy Harper. He's out taking out some people that I guess I think it's some sort of weapons deal, arms deal, while Oliver Queen's back at home babysitting Leanne and Leanne calls because she needs her bedtime story. So even though Roy Harper's out there doing his superhero thing, he has to, to tell the bedtime story. And, and you can tell it's a story that Leanne's heard many times. And it's it's basically the story of Oliver Queen and Roy Harper in – in modern times, modern DC history of, of how they, they came together and sort of a, a quick and dirty recap of their relationship and the problems that, that uh, Roy Harper's gone through with drugs and whatnot. So in that context, I think it worked very, very well. Uh, I thought the art was was solid. And again, it's just a reminder of all the crap that DC has put Roy Harper through over the, <laughs> the years. And it and goes back to what I was saying earlier about me hoping that they – Give poor Roy Harper a break at some point and just let him have some some happiness. Uh, so, yeah, I thought this was one of the better stories and, and great to see Devin Grayson do some comic work again. It's been a while. Yeah, I agree. And uh, just to reiterate my earlier point, uh, I love Leon, man, and uh, his daughter, Leon. And again, Roy Harper thinks his daughter is dead. And what a wonderful reward at some point that Roy Harper is going to be received when he finds out his daughter is still alive. And, and ultimately, Cheshire is going to find out that her daughter is still alive, too. So I, there's lots. I think there's a lot of adventure for uh, Roy Harper yet to come. And I'm looking forward to it. Uh, part of me thinks it can't be a coincidence that we're getting all these Leon stories uh, because that are just tugging at the heartstrings in different ways. Uh, clearly, I think the writing on the wall is here that at some point we're going to get a, uh, an, an, an what I hope is a very heartfelt reunion story between father and daughter. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, the next story sort of harkens back to a certain era uh, of Green Arrow as well. It's not written by Kevin Smith, but uh, the Phil Hester art, he, he's the one that handles the art and writes the story uh, and very, very much reminiscent of Quiver when Oliver Queen was dead, as we mentioned, and they, DC finally brought him back. Uh, it was written by Kevin Smith. Uh, but this was the art team, uh, Phil Hester with inks by Andy Parks. And this one we have tr uh, colors by Trish Mulvihill and letters by Clem Robbins. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's not much more to say about that. It, it's very much a story of that time. And you can't not think about that era of, of, of Green Arrow, which was really sort of heartfelt and emotional. I, I don't think Kevin Smith gets enough credit for uh, how excellent of a comic book writer he is, how much emotion he brings to his stories. Um and this one, Oliver Queen has to rescue a, a little girl from sort of from herself. She's being used by um, some gangsters to, to manipulate. She, she can like 
push people, I think is the way they put it, uh, make them see things that aren't there, cast illusions and whatnot. Um, and so she she uses that as a defense mechanism and, and uses it on Oliver. And he ends up having to sort of face her down and, and face up against some of his uh, classic villains, Onomatopoeia, uh, Count Vertigo, uh, even, even has to fight against uh, Hal Jordan and Black Canary which is yeah. kind of the giveaway to him that he knows it's, it's not real. So um, I, I don't think it's as emotional a story as, as quiver, obviously, uh, especially because it's just, you know, a real short six pager here. Uh, but it definitely with the art style invokes that, that era. So I thought it was okay. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I'm not, I, where have I seen Star before? Is this a new character? Where, where have I? I think it's an. I think it's a new character. I'm not familiar with. Because I'm with not. Her. Yeah, because I'm not. I'm not familiar with her either. But I mean, again, maybe it's my memory. <laughs> I'm not. It's an interesting character. I'm. I'm not sure how old is she supposed to be. Is she a teenager? Is she, she looks like a child in one image, and then almost like a teenager in the next. But, but anyways, an, an interesting character, and I like the way the story was structured. That we got sort of a callback to that those classic Phil Hester days of. Uh, which is, you know, another another era of Green Green Arrow that it's not my favorite era era of Green Arrow, but it, it was entertaining and it, again and an, a very well crafted story. I, I you know I can't complain. I thought it was well done. Yeah, the next one's called Happy Anniversary. Vita Ayala, Laura Braga, Adriana Lucas, and Becca Carey. This one, ah, the art is gorgeous. Um, the story itself, I guess, it's just it, it felt like a reason to kind of showcase the relationship between uh, Green Arrow and Black Canary, how they they have a lighthearted relationship for the most part. Um, and it's never quite what they think it is because any any sort of romantic or uh, fun things they ever plan are always interrupted by this villain attacking or that villain attacking or, or whatever. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, <laughs> what kind of bugged me was the fact that they were able to capture Deathstroke at all? Um, I was like, wait, what? But then we find out, oh, uh, he, I was just trying to distract you. I was paid to, to keep you out of a certain part of town. So then I got, oh, okay, I guess it makes sense. He allowed himself to be captured. Um, but we don't even find out what's going on with that part of town. They head off um, to figure out what's going on uh, on their anniversary. And, and in a way, I guess it sort of summarizes their relationship. They, they hope for a nice quiet evening at home with a nice meal to celebrate their anniversary. But uh, Dinah and Oliver end up fighting crime, fighting villains on their anniversary instead, which I suppose is much more uh, true and indicative of the relationship they have than a quiet dinner at home. So uh, the art was solid. Colors were really great. Um, I felt like the, the relationship, the banter back and forth was very uh, authentic from Vita, but I don't know. I, I guess maybe I, I want the whole issue, right? Like I want, okay, what what were you kind of trying to distract them from? And let you know, let me let me see more of the yeah. battle. So uh, I don't know. It felt a little incomplete. Um, yeah, but I, I I don't think that was the point. I think the point was the banter. Yeah, so. yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, I I'm gonna I'm gonna show some Deathstroke love here. I don't know if you. I'm sure you remember, but there was a there was a time back in the day uh, during Identity Crisis where where Green Arrow really pissed off Deathstroke and took out one took out his eye, uh, and uh, there was a time when when Deathstroke uh, also 
played a role in taking out Bloodhaven. And then there was a time where Green Arrow bettered himself, came back better than ever, and took down Deathstroke. It was a really a great storyline. So I was I'm just glad to see Deathstroke in here. I I would I do think he's a little misused. Deathstroke at least. Deathstroke hates Oliver Queen. Yeah. <laughs> at least he hates Oliver Queen. At least in the incarnate in the storylines I remember, uh, we're going all the way back to Identity Crisis. So uh, this was a little bit. Uh, I, I don't see Deathstroke doing any favors for Oliver Queen, but uh, in any event, it was nice to see Deathstroke, even if it was for kind of a, you know, kind of a by the numbers uh, story. Yeah. Next up, we have the Sympathy of the Woods. Writer Benjamin Percy, art by Otto Schmidt, letters by Nate Picos. Now, I, I will say that. Along with Juan Ferreira and Stephen Byrne, Otto Schmidt, like that for me, that's one of my favorite eras of Green Arrow when Benjamin Percy was writing it and you had those three artists trading off arcs because every one of them, Otto Schmidt, Stephen Byrne, Juan Ferreira, they'd not only draw it, they would color it. Um, and it just made the art pop because they knew when they were drawing it, they drew with the eye toward knowing how they were going to color it. And it made the art absolutely spectacular. So, you know, again, seeing Otto Schmidt give me a, you know, some start to finish art in a green arrow story. I'm, I'm a hundred percent in and Benjamin Percy was a great writer for that was where I, the first comic book um, work that I was, uh, became familiar with Benjamin Percy and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So this harkens back to that time and it works really, really well. And ultimately what the story is about. So Merlin is, is uh, attacking green arrow supposed to be out on holiday camping in the woods with his friends and instead he's being stalked by Merlin. Um, and ultimately at the end of the story, Merlin is, is defeated. And it's not, it's not that he's defeated by Green Arrow because we're told that Green Arrow isn't just one man. It's a family, it's a forest, it's a quiver. You know, there's yeah. more than one arrow in a quiver and there's more than just Oliver Queen when it comes to Green Arrow. So we see Amico, we see John Diggle, we see Black Canary and we see Oliver Queen. And so it's a great reminder that over the years, um, Green Arrow has become more than just Oliver Queen. Uh, and I think the best Green Arrow stories do involve other characters, whether it's Amico or John Diggle, or certainly Black Canary. Um, I think those work a lot better than the, the just the Oliver Queen stories. Although I do have, uh, as I said, a, a, a soft spot, spot in my heart for certain eras of green arrow, especially the, the one that leads to his death. It was called crossroads and it ran for like 10, 10 issues when Oliver was out on his own. Um, with great, I think it was drawn by Jim Aparo. It was like fantastic art. Mm. Um, but anyway, this is just a reminder that, that green arrow is more than just Oliver queen and, uh, done very well by Benjamin Percy. What did you think? Uh, Rocky? I don't have much to add. Uh, I, I agree. This was a this was a really good one. I, I really liked it, and and you you hit the nail on the head with the uh, with, with the, the art is really good. And uh, Benjamin yeah. Percy, um, I, I thought that the I thought I thought his the beginning of his Green Arrow run was better. I, I thought it, it sort of petered out near the end there. But uh, I, I've, I'm a, I'm a I think Benjamin Percy's only gotten better. I actually think he's done really well at Marvel too, and because. Uh, yeah. uh, and so he certainly w definitely got his feet wet with Green Arrow, and he's he did a good job. And it's, I'm so glad. I one thing I I 
one thing I can't complain about in this compilation with Green Arrow is that we really are. This is a fitting tribute. We're getting a lot of the great writers and the and the the, the people that deserve to come back to to write some some Green Arrow stories. We're, we're definitely getting the the classics of of the last twenty five thirty years. We're getting some great uh, great tributes here from from writers that definitely des- and artists that deserve to come back and strut their stuff and remind us of what why we love this character. Yeah, another critically acclaimed run. Um that was after the JT Kroll run that start that kicked off the new 52 green arrow was Jeff Lemire writing and Andrea Sorrentino as the artist. And then those two continued, uh, their, uh, creative relationship most recently with Gideon falls, which won you know, Eisner's and is critically acclaimed and hopefully going to become a TV show at some point. And then they just announced they're working on a new, uh, the title of it slips my mind right now, but they, they just announced the title of their new, and it's about, uh, like the animals that were first lost into space and then they are launched into space, I, I should say, and then eventually come back to earth and like show up and like, Hey, we're back right. <laughs> and they're evolved or something. So anyway, uh, but this, this uh, it's called the last green arrow story from writer, Jeff Lemire, Andrea Sorrentino on art, Jordi Belair on colors, Rob Lee on letters. I'll let you go first. Cause I know you, this is, you said this was your favorite story. So what do you uh-huh. have to say? Well, actually, this is uh, I. This was uh, I really do like this story. It's actually the last one I thought was a fitting tribute, uh, which uh, written. Oh, the this, next. Okay, you're right. But, this is but, the next last. Yeah, yeah. But but I really do like this. I, uh, I will say overall, next to the Mike Krell Longbow Hunters, I love Jeff Lemire's run on Green Arrow. It's my favorite, and Andrea Sorrentino's art was fantastic, and I, um, um, I just love this style. I love this style of art. And I just, I just love Jeff, Jeff Lemire, I thought was just, I just loved narratively, I loved his Oliver Queen, his Oliver Queen was sort of dark and visceral and a little bit, maybe a little bit too dark at times. But even here, talking about the final hunt and 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 in the end of this story, we've got sort of a Oliver Queen sort of uh, metaphorically sort of lighting himself on fire, the, the the final arrow, and and almost like burning himself at the stake. And uh, I thought it was, it, it's a t- I got more of a metaphor out of this story. You can read different things into it. I I liked it. I I just again I just. I wish I wish Jeff Lemire is such a prolific writer. The guy can write anything, and he—I don't know how he can write so be on so many different titles and be so consistently good on on pretty much all of them. And wow, I, I don't think uh, uh, I knew at the time that we that Jeff Lemire was something special when he was on Green Arrow. I knew at the time. I I you know I I called it and I was right. And uh, we I, and I wasn't the only one. And this. I really enjoyed this. Uh, I really enjoyed this, uh, this callback. what do you think of it? Yeah, I, I agree. Very, very metaphorical, um, showing kind of the cyclical nature of, of Oliver Queen's life. Um, and I, and I like it because what I read into it is he, he made himself a hero, right? He doesn't have superpowers. Um, and on that Island, he, you know, depending on the origin, um, he had to dig deep and he, he made himself into who he is. He's a self-made guy. And that, that's kind of what, what I got out of the story. And the Sorrentino art is, is perfect. Um, although there are times where I feel like I'm like, wait, is that old man Logan or no, no, no. Okay. It's Oliver Queen, old man, Oliver Queen. Um, so yeah, I, I thought it was great. The Jordi Belair colors are outstanding as well. So yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. And then the last story doesn't have any dialogue. 
Um, but what it is, it's a tribute to Denny O'Neill. It's called Tap, Tap, Tap. I mentioned it's written by Larry O'Neill, who's uh, the son of Denny O'Neill. Jorge Fornes does the art, and Dave Stewart is, does the color. So uh, give us your thoughts on this one, Rocky. Oh, it just, it just tugs at the heartstrings, you know? Uh, you know, the, it just tugs at the heartstrings because this is a, you know, I mean, can you get more, even the concept, this is a son writing a story as a tribute to his dad. Can you get more awesome than that? Isn't that what it's all about? You know, this is, the Green Arrow is about, the concept of Green Arrow is about family. It's about legacy. And and so, and so the same thing can be said about creators. And so we got Denny O'Neill, an absolute legend in the industry. I mean, what, I mean, good Lord, we don't have enough time to, we could talk for days about uh, Denny O'Neill, his legacy. And this is just such a, just a beautiful, uh, just a beautiful tribute. And it, it's really a snapshot. It's snapshots from Denny O'Neill's uh, life is what I can gather. And just his, just the role he, he, you know, just his life and, and all that he did as a writer, bringing all these heroes to life and all the heroes that he wrote uh, from Batman to Green Arrow to from the 60s to the 70s. And and uh, and uh, hinting at his, 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 even hinting at his, uh, his drinking issues and the question and uh, and his marriage and 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 all his awards and writing for the Justice League. And and I mean, heck, even on. Even at the end there, I mean, good Lord. I mean, I'm glad I'm talking fast. If I let myself, I could tear up. I, it's just so touching to see, you know, Goodnight Pops at the end. It looks like uh, Green Arrow holding his hand as, as all these heroes surround him on his on his bed. I actually wonder, like, is that how he passed? Like, that's, this is a very personal story. I mean, is this how Denny O'Neill died in, in a hospital room surrounded by his family? Uh, I mean, this is a... This seems like a very, very personal tale, and uh, I, I almost feel like we're privy to something quite, quite touching and, and moving here. And I, I think that we should all be privileged that his son did, wanted to share this story with us. It was, I just, I'm just really moved. Yeah, there's so much here in terms of little details that that are fantastic, right? Yeah. Every word balloon. And I say word balloon because again, there's not really any words, but the what would be the word balloons are are shaped in such a way to convey what Denny is thinking about during that period of his life. It starts off with him, you know, sitting on the floor of what must have been his childhood apartment, listening to uh, a cowboy serial, what I'm assuming is a radio serial on on the radio, uh, and the the balloon is shaped like a cowboy hat. And, you know, the Cowboys riding through and even the name, even the, the title tap, tap, tap. If you look at the, the font, right? Like that first tap is clearly a typewriter. Yeah. The second one is clearly a word processor where there's, you know, some sharp right <laughs> angles, perpendicular angles on the letters. And yeah. then the third is, you know, a modern computer where the, the letters are much more streamlined. Um, and then you, you see him write, re- reading a Superman comic. You see him in the Navy. Uh, and the, the balloon is a gun and he's thinking about adventures and, you know, always a writer absorbing life experiences um, and then taking a comic writer test and, and, you know, becoming a writer and moving to the big city and then uh, meeting his wife and the turbulent time of the 60s and h- him believing in peace to his iconic work on Green Arrow, where the balloon is shaped like an arrow, receiving awards, best issue 1971. Uh, that's a reference to the the speedy drug issue 
writing the Justice League, and then Rocky alluded to uh, his drinking issues and him having uh, having joined AA, and the balloon is shaped like a bottle. Um, going to see kung fu films and and being uh, you know inspired, uh, taking his own son, which I assume is Larry, to see to see those films, and getting married. The question, which uh, one of the uh, characters he's most known for working on. We see him with all his awards and then uh, him getting to see the legacy, you know, part of what he helped build. I mean, he was so influential as the group editor uh, and wrote ton, tons of Batman stories as well. Uh, but seeing Batman 1989, you know, and, and that come to life and, and so much of it inspired by stories he created and then, uh, probably the the part of the story where the most time passes is between that panel of him seeing Batman 89 and then the next panel where, Hey, now you see a lot of these characters that you've contributed to over the years on, you know, on, on TV, on, in other medium, you know, Batman, Green Lantern, uh, Green Arrow, Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, you know, all these characters that he's, he's written. Um, and to the point where even uh, as he was in his last days, still a storyteller. Um, so Rocky's right. I, I mean, absolutely incredible story. I, I did have the opportunity to meet Danny O'Neill once uh, just a couple years ago. Uh, I think it was 2018 at, at Phoenix Comic-Con. Um, and, it, you know, it was a real pleasure to, to meet him and to hear him talk. Um, and so, yeah, you can't really overstate how much Danny O'Neill meant to, um, to DC Comics from the seventies through the, through the eighties into the nineties, uh, especially with his Batman work, um, as an editor. I mean, he, he steered the ship and, uh, yeah, fitting, fitting tribute. So definitely worth, uh, definitely w worthy of this tribute. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, so that, yeah, that does it for uh, for the DC books, and you know, even though I, I thought this would be a shorter ep episode because there's only four, but like we said, they're all very long, especially the the hundred pager there at the end. So uh, next week, as we mentioned, it's a huge week. I think there's sixteen DC books, of which we'll probably talk about thir thirteen of them. Yeah, but, man, better yeah, better start. I guess we better start reading them now. Um, <laughs> yeah. I already have started reading them now. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I need to get on it because uh, it'll sneak up on me before I know it. And then I'll be <laughs> frantically trying to read them all on, on the, the same day we're going to record. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's it for DC this week. It, it wasn't a, it wasn't a heavy week uh, at all. And, and, you know, sometimes there there's, oh, well, we didn't cover this because, you know, we're not caught up on it or whatever. There's not even anything else. That That is literally is it, just these four books. So uh, anything you got coming up this week that you want to tease, Rocky? Uh, I think I might do I might do a summary video on uh, Infinite Frontier so far, just to s summarize and put uh, sort of collect to collect my thoughts in terms of where things might be going and speculating because uh you know when we do these videos we we focus we we have so many comics to review it's hard to sort of get into the weeds on some of the more some of the more detailed on, on some you know in all the details on infinite frontier and uh so i think i might uh i might explore that a little bit more but uh what do you got coming up you know i don't have anything coming up this week um Nothing I can I can mention. There there will be a um, 
it created our own spotlight for another zoop.gg. Uh, if you want to go check it out, it's already live. Uh, as we record this, it's um, a new creator-owned book from Ron Mars and Andy Lanning. So I'll be talking to Ron about that on Wednesday, and that episode should come out on Thursday. But uh, but other than that, uh, I don't really have anything coming up this week. I'm getting caught up on some some things that have kind of fallen by the wayside. I've been doing so many interviews lately, uh, and then I've got the big project that's coming up that I'll probably start releasing information about later on toward the end of the week. Uh, it's a giant project that's been taking up a lot of my time. It's for a very worthwhile cause. Uh, and there'll be a lot of information forthcoming and you guys will get sick of seeing it on social media, I'm sure. Um, but I won't apologize for uh, how much promotion I'm going to push because nor, I really nor should you from, from what I know, yeah. it's a, it's very yeah. much a worthy cause. Yeah, exactly. So uh, more details to come on that. So be sure you uh, you stay tuned. Uh, also, be sure if you're listening to us on the podcast that you head over to the YouTube channel, Comic Boom! Exclamation point. Give Rocky uh, a follow. Make sure you're subscribed to his channel. Hit the notification bell so you know when new content goes up. And be sure to uh, like this video. Uh, conversely, if you're checking us out on the Comic Boom channel and you don't listen to the podcast, uh, Comic Source does a lot more than just this collaboration with Rocky every Tuesday. Uh, we have our new Comics Wednesday episodes, which are spoiler-free. We talk about the books that come out from other publishers uh, every Wednesday, yeah. as well as tons of interviews and, uh, and other content. So be sure that you listen to us on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. We're everywhere, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Um, anybody who hosts a podcast, we're on there. So be sure to, uh, to check it out. So as always, we appreciate you guys spending uh, some time with us on uh, this episode and hearing about the DC Comics for this week. And we'll talk to you next time. See you guys later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>